my mom always had a saying that she said the Warriors would say, and it's it was today's a good day to die. And it was like we said that to each other every single day. And it was more of like a um, you know, like no matter what happens to me today, I'm good. Like I'm right with God, I'm right with my family, I'm clean on my end. In this episode, Dan and I get Jeremiah, a retired Green Beret who has an incredible career in the military over the past 20 years, on the phone from his home in Colorado to discuss more about his prior military career. We connect with him on his family's roots and the Native American culture and being a true American cowboy in the mountain ranges throughout Wyoming and Colorado. Lastly, we touch on finding out about more on how CBD and medical marijuana helps not only civilians, but veterans with a multitude of issues post-war. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Jeremiah, what's going on, man? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no worries. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Of course, man. Had a, a little bit of dinner and poured some whiskey and want to have you on here to kind of talk a little bit about your story. And obviously, I want to really get into uh, more about your business. But to get started, I'd love to hear about um, kind of your story. What first inspired you to join the military? You know, what age you were, what branch you were in, everything like that. Right on. Um, so my dad was in the army um, and it was kind of like one of those things, you know, like it was just seeing him. Um, well, he, when I was a kid, he was in National Guard, so a little bit different. But, um, you know, seeing him go off like on the weekends, putting on his uniform, that was pretty cool. Uh, and that was like from a really young age, from like two, I would say like earliest memories, maybe like three, four years old. Um, my mother, is, and a little bit of background on my on me, my mother by blood is Muscularo Apache, but okay. she was adopted and raised a Cinnaboyne Indian, which is a band of the Sioux up in Montana. So with my mom being native and my dad being a soldier, it was just like warrior culture. It was like all my mom and dad ever talked about. Um, my dad, you know, would always sing me like cadences when I was a kid and, you know, playing in the backyard, playing guns with my friends. It was like, I always had the best gear cause I'd be cameled up and have my dad's <laughs> stuff on, you know? And like my dad would teach me like real like ranger shit. He was like, no, you need to do this. Like you need to do this. Like, so I think it just super young started. And then, my mom always had a saying that she said the warriors would say, and it's, it was today's a good day to die. And it was like, we said that to each other every single day. And it was more of like a, um, you know, like no matter what happens to me today, um, I'm good. Like I'm right with God. I'm right with my family. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm clean on my end, you know? So, uh, I just grew up like that. And then, um, as a kid, you know, I wrestled, I did martial arts, since I was probably like 10. So I just like stayed in that. And my mom was like my cut man, you know, she was my corner and like, just always like pushed that, um, warrior mindset and warrior spirit. So I definitely think me joining the military was a calling and something I knew I was going to do from a very young age. That's cool. Um, Uh, I I don't want to, I don't want to stop you mid mid thought, but I I kind of want to go back to that. Like, that's a pretty powerful thing to say that today is a good day to die, like to live with that and grow up with that motto in the back of your mind. And then obviously serving in the military, like that's, that's incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's like, it was also because 
when I was a kid, we lived in Montana and the area we, we lived in was everyone works outdoors. Everyone lives off the land. So you're a cattleman or, you know, you're, you're training horses, you're breaking horses, you're rodeo. And it was just something that was always in um, like a very, I want to say, I don't want to use the word manly because, you know, like my mom and my aunts were just as good a cowboys as my dad and my uncles were. But um, I, I would say just that very respectful, like respect of nature um, and your surroundings. And, you know, we lived in bear country and like everyone hunts and fishes and lives off the land. I just think it was so normal for people to be injured or to die. And it was like kind of a, um, uh, I would just say it was like, it, it was just always there. Um, where I think a lot of people's families, especially with children, they will kind of shelter them away from death and, and, and act like, you know, no one dies or nothing bad ever happens to people. Whereas my mom, um, and my dad being like strong Christians and at the same time, understanding life, understanding that, you know, there is an end and you don't need to be scared of it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that was, that was a lot of it. it was just like, you know, my dad could go out, um, go punch cows one day and not come back, you know, somebody's <laughs> getting kicked in the, kicked in the head yeah. by a horse or whatever. So I think that was just kind of our, um, kind of an easy way for our family to, um, understand the realization of like what, what actual consequences are. So I think that it is very powerful, but I also think it was just uh, my mom trying to stay in touch with her, um, like native beliefs mm -hmm. as well as, you know, Christianity and just, um, you know, like in my mind, it's like, if you're good with God, you know, it does suck. No one wants to die. And yeah. You don't want your friends to die and family to die. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's, um, it's inevitable. And, mm -hmm. um, sometimes, you know, God has a plan. So who knows what that plan is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like from the day that you're born, you're a day closer to death. So having that mindset <laughs> of like, you know, you got to take every day for its fullest, but also realize that there is like a terminal end to your life. Um, is incredibly powerful. And I'm sure like serving in the military too, and thinking about, you know, what that's, what that warrior mindset and, you know, just taking each day one day at a time, um, and trying to make the best of it really like is a different mindset than a lot of people have, even in the military. Like I, I, I you know, I served in second range battalion, so I've deployed, I've done, you know, six combat tours. Um, I know what it's like, but yet, you know, each person has a different mindset to what that combat is like and what their mindset is going into each day, each mission set. Um, so having that different mindset is, is pretty powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm curious um, when you said that, so you grew up, your mom and dad were Christian and they're Native American. So I'm curious to be kind of educated by you and, and figure that out. Cause I do, um, quite a bit of uh, Mustang work with the Navajo out in Northern Arizona mm -hmm. with some of my friends that are born and raised on the reservation there. And, you know, from what I understood is obviously they understand that I'm Christian, but they don't believe obviously in Christianity because it's a white man's kind of Western man's culture. Is that, was that kind of a conflicting thing or is it a little bit more kind of welcomed um, with uh, your parents' nation? No. Yeah. And I, I can't, I can't speak for, for the Diné people, but, um, and, and what, and what they believe in, mm -hmm. um, for me, it was the same stories were told to me by, um, like wise men or like prophets, you know, elders of the Cinnaboy nation. And, um, one of the closest, uh, people where his name's Harris rock, he, um, 
he's just known as like a prophet in Christianity and in, you know, in the, in the, to the Cinnaboyan people. And he would tell stories about, you know, Iktum and the great creator and how he died on a tree. And the story wasn't exactly the way verbatim, the way it is in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's very, very similar. And I'm not sure if that was passed down through, um, you know, white men, Christians, whether they're French or trappers or what have you, as they um, came to the West. But it was definitely something that um, my family in particular believed in. And, and maybe there was just kind of changed to a native story. Um, I'm not sure. But at the same time, there is also a lot of traditions that I think to Christians, it could be perceived as non-Christianity. But I look at it as like, the the Bible is an interpretation of what someone wrote down that was passed down through time. So if you, that's the whole thing of faith, you know, like yep. some of the stories may be wild. Some of the things may be um, elaborated on, you know, like Noah might not have been 900, but maybe they were just counting moons. Maybe he was 120. So, I mean, I think there's a lot to interpret there. So I think oftentimes, sometimes as Christians, especially for um, like the Anglo-European who learned that way, it's like, you can go back and look what they did. They were like burning people at the stake and oh, doing yeah, basically yeah. Witch, witchcraft um, and practicing witchcraft. So it's like, I think that that's a very loose term when you speak specifically about different cultures and heritages and what they learned about Christianity because it's faith-based. So I think that for me, that's where I really draw on it more so of being a faith and things that have happened to me in my life where I know that um, that God is with me, whether that's, whether I call him the great creator or I call him Jesus or God or whatever, like for me, that's something that the way I was raised. So I don't necessarily know about a lot of the native traditions. I know there's are a lot of other native cultures out there that, that say those things or have it. But then when they tell the story, it sounds very similar when they talk about Iktun, which is the devil and like the great creator. So, um, that's, that's all I know really on that. that that's an interesting way of, uh, of putting it. And, um, so obviously you grew up with kind of the cowboy culture instilled in you from a young boy. I wasn't sure if you got into it post-war and that was kind of like a hobby you picked up. Cause for me, I guess, um, you know, I've been into cutting horses for a little while now and I love going out and mm-hmm. doing like some packing trips and all that, but I didn't get into it until like my mid twenties or so. So that's kind of cool that you grew up with it and it's stuck with you and become who you are. Well, for me, honestly, it was like, um, and I was kind of, oh, I was talking to my wife about this too. I grew up in Montana until I was like 13 or 14. And then we moved to Las Vegas. So I went to high school, junior high and high school in Las Vegas. Um, and then I joined the army like right out of high school. I didn't get a chance to really do much in the army. Um, you know, fast forward, you know, like 12 or 13 years, I did some courses in special forces. Um, I work with, like I packed donkeys and mules on, um, in Afghanistan, but it wasn't anything that I did as a teenager and as an adult. Um, and then like closer to retirement, once I got, um, into Colorado, then that's where I really started getting back into it. Um, so by no means am I like, you know, like the horse whisperer or been doing this all my life. Um, I definitely grew up in cowboy culture, grew up on a ranch, um, you know, punch cows since I can remember when my dad, mom and dad, and then, you know, had a break, I would say of at least, um, 15, 16 years, 
Um, hold so on, I'm, hold gonna, on. I'm gonna let you explain. Yeah, this. I was, actually, I'm laughing at that, and I actually just realized that I'm probably laughing at something that I just didn't realize what the context was. So, what does punching cows mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's like a like a cattleman term, you know, like it's just working cows, just cowboying. So, there's definitely a difference between like a true cowboy or like a buckaroo that works cattle. Um, so you're not going up to him and like just like punch him in the face or something. And... Sometimes. Sometimes you have to, I mean, you carry an ax handle around a lot of times to separate calves from the cows. I mean, it's, it gets rough, man. Those mama cows are pretty wow. badass. <laughs> you gotta be a real cowpoke for that. Yeah. yeah. It kinda, it's kind of <laughs> the same though. Like, uh, with horses too, like you have an understanding of horses. Sometimes it's like, obviously you want to, like, I'm very, uh, ethical with, you know, having that respect for the horse, not being so abusive on him, but sometimes you gotta, you know, point at their eyes, beat them a little bit here and there. <laughs> so that, that's cool that you, uh, so I was watching some of your Instagram stories and, uh, I'm hoping that people go to your channel after this, um, when we upload it and can check out some of your stuff. Cause a lot of that stuff, it's like fucking frigid cold winters of watching the <laughs> snow come down. And it looks like you're out there by yourself, you know, Ryan, probably I imagine 30, 40 miles in the wind river yeah. kind of, uh, mountain areas. What's that kind of like? Like, is it a very therapeutic experience or is it just something that you'd love to kind of do on the regular? Um, I mean, it's both. So I would say, um, like when I first started talking to you and, and, and I talked to other guys, I kind of rewind just a little bit. It's, I'm in such a great headspace after retiring mm -hmm. that it's like anything I can do to share with other guys that, um, especially I look at, um, not to go down a rabbit hole, but I, I look at social media and, you know, you being from range of Bataan, I'm sure you, you see exactly what I see. It's like the coolest guys on Instagram never wrote an NCOER. They are, they just started, you know, like I wasn't allowed to take pictures or wear a helmet camera, you know, like none of that stuff was taboo. And it's like, these guys started deploying like 2017, 2018, and they're documenting all this stuff and trying to look really awesome, really badass. And it's like, Dude, you've been on like three raids, like chill out. It's not a big deal. But the part that really kind of that I don't like is that all these guys are posting all this cool guy stuff. And you have to remember that the veteran population is 1% of the American population. The special operations community is 1% of the veteran community. So we are doing nothing but trying to be cool guys and post all this stuff and act like we're so badass we're literally leaving behind 99% of the veteran community. Yep. So mm -hmm. it's like, it kind of bothers me a little bit that, that some of the guys have just taken this, like, like dudes are literally going to 7-Eleven in full kit and buying Slurpees and it's ridiculous. Yep. So for me, it's like, what? I just want to share what guys are doing outside of that. And yeah. You know, and it's, it's, and I'm in such a good headspace because of certain things. And yes, horses in the mountains and i i'm just such a huge advocate for like getting outside you know regardless where you live at regardless what state you're in especially if you're a veteran and you're dealing with some trauma or dealing with something go outside go for a walk do whatever your body you know you, you may have limit limitations to your body i understand that but push the limits you know like do everything you can to get outside and for me that i'm fortunate enough where i can go in the mountains all the time whether it's on skis or on a horse or just running you know or just hiking with the kids so I think that's like just a huge therapeutic thing for me. Um, and if I go too long without being in the mountains, I get like antsy and edgy. And my wife's like, go for a run, bro. Like, 
go yeah. to the mountains, go camping, <laughs> well, that, take that, the dogs, like do whatever. <laughs> that, that's kind of like, uh, you know, the trip that, um, you know, I'm taking a, across the U S you know, I do quite a few of these cross country road trips and I'm the same way. Like I get too antsy about not being in, in nature. And I feel like it's because it's where we all come from. And a lot of people, I think nowadays, I don't want to call it like a current generation, you know, because there's quite a few people that love the outdoors and camping and being outdoorsmen and outdoors women. And, but I think that for the most part, you're not really seeing those rough and tough guys anymore that can build their own fire, that can build shelter, hunt for their own food. So to me personally, it's kind of like, it's very eye opening, and, and it's always like a reminder for me to be around God's creation, to be out there alone and and it's so peaceful so I, I totally get that but i mean i mean do you see that i mean with the guys that maybe even you've served with or this current generation of like these mill sim guys or these bro vets i mean do you think personally these guys can kind of take care of themselves out in the wild even though they were deployed yeah no so like um obviously you know i just retired in january i'm kind of old school when it comes to a lot of the my mindset and things I've seen. And, you know, I was kind of that crusty team sergeant that cussed everybody out. I was kind of honoring and angry just because of, um, I'm without going too much down like the veteran rabbit hole or, or specifically talking things people may not understand. I'm like, I'm huge on like ranger tasks, like skill level one, skill level two. If you're mm -hmm. good at the basics, you can be good at anything else. And I think oftentimes in the cool guy world of special operations, back to the Instagram stuff, um, guys want to like drive and shoot out of cars. And it's like, dude, you can't even walk and shoot on the flat range. Like, what are you talking about? Like, so I, I did see this weirdness and then it is the same when, you know, it's like, yeah, guys go to serious school, guys learn how to survive and build fires and things like that. But I think the average American male or, you know, and especially if you just take soldiers as a demographic, which mm -hmm. should be above par from everybody else. I think, um, they don't know what they're really getting themselves into. You know, it's like, they've always been, uh, in a group, or, you know, a team setting, you know, there's three or four or 10 to 20 guys out there at a time. Um, being out on your own is, is, um, that's my favorite thing because it's, you're so vulnerable and that's what I really love about it. You know, um, like guys who surf the oceans that way for people, the mountains are just like that for me. It's like they, it, they can take you at any moment, you know, mm, yep. um, whether that's backcountry skiing on an avalanche or a grizzly bear or your horse spooks, you know, it sees a shadow and kicks oh, yeah. you off. You bonk your head on a rock. Like who knows what can happen to you. So that's where it goes back to me where it's like, it's today's a good day to die. You know, like, and if I, I don't want to die, I want to be a dad and, and, and uh, take care of my family. But at the same time, I love that vulnerability of, the wilderness and the mountains. And I just don't think people are really connected to like primal instincts anymore. Yeah. So like you said, if they were to like build a fire or like you said, the bro vets, like I wish I, I can't stand like the civil war crap and like all this nonsense. It's like, dude, if they cut the power and the water, you're fucked. Like you're not doing anything. <laughs> like I don't want to hear so stop talking about how awesome you are. And like all this crap, like if they got the power and the water to the United States, like, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. yep. You don't know what to do. So you can't even like, you don't even know how to like gut a fish. Come on, bro. Yep. If that happens, I'm going <laughs> to the fucking mountains. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Now I, uh, man, I'm so, I'm so glad you brought that up because you know, that was kind of like the whole onus behind our company and what we're doing with this book and, and, uh, you know, what we're trying to do to share a different message, a different side 
of the veteran experience um, and really get away from that, I guess, Hollywood version of the military. Um, mm-hmm. Get away from that like high speed veteran that, you know, sat on a fob their whole time, their entire time, <laughs> you know, in service or maybe never even deployed, but now, you know, making millions on Instagram and YouTube channels and it's just uh, yeah, it, it's sad to see things like that blow up so quickly. But then, you know, all the other veterans that are doing incredible things and the stories aren't being told or they're not shared as easily, um, you know, they should get equal, if not more recognition um, and really just make it to where it's more of an opening of a door to all the other veterans that see that there Absolutely. are every day, you know, soldiers, sailors, Marines, um, Coast Guard and just, you know, share that side of it. And airmen. Sorry, I don't want to forget them. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah those those guys <laughs> yeah, um, i think i think it's oh sorry i didn't mean to cut you off no no you're good go ahead um no what i was going to say was i think that um you know i for me and you guys like me and you like we went to a selection process and you knew exactly what you're getting yourself into like you went to ranger battalion i went to sfas because i wanted to like close with and engage the enemy. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I was born to do was to kill bad guys. Everyone is not born for that. It's not everyone's calling. There's a lot of guys in the military who went for college money or wanted a good job or needed to get away, whatever their reason was for joining the military. And that's, they're all honorable reasons regardless. But I think that it's very easy to go down the cool guy pipeline and, um, where other veterans don't want to talk about it. And my analogy to this is like, if you're a truck driver in the 82nd, no one's going to like say, Oh wow, cool. You're a truck driver or like glorify that you're a truck driver. Mm -hmm. But what, what we, what, what we oftentimes do in the veteran community is again, me and you went to selection for that. We knew we were getting ourselves into it. So I'm not saying that us having PTSD or issues, um, you know, that we're not allowed to have those issues. We are. However, I think that for me, if I flew into an objective and I was on the X for two days, three days, whatever, or a couple hours and flew away, we have to remember that there was a a kid, that truck driver who drove back and forth from Kabul to Jalalabad, you know, twice a week, who was terrified. He may have never gotten in a gunfight in his life, never, never saw an IED, heard an IED, never got shot at, but he didn't go to selection or, or RASP or like join for that. He was like, I don't know, I'm gonna drive trucks, like stay out of combat, I'll make some money to go to college and then gets thrown into this stuff. So, I mean, there's lots of guys who had jobs you never would have thought of that were cooks or whatever that I wrote in machine gun turrets and got engagements with the enemy. So I think it's very easy for the cool guys. And that's where I I have an issue with these guys posting all these pictures or doing all this stuff, you know, full kit and trying to act like they're so badass. And it's like, Hey man, you, you might've been a badass and I'm not saying you're not, but that doesn't mean that the kid that drove his truck, you know, that did a hundred convoys in Afghanistan in one year isn't scarred and doesn't have issues for sure. I, I, I just think that that's very easy for, for guys to do. And it's, and me, I think because I'm retired, um, I work my way through the ranks and, and, um, it's kind of hard as a special operations guy to see the bigger picture. It's very easy to kind of like 
run your team or run, you know, color in your little box. And I think a lot of people give us credit for thinking outside the box and being this, um, these great units. But a lot of times people don't understand that like, yeah, I'm the ladder man. And that's what I do. Like I'm Mm -hmm. the best ladder man in Ranger Battalion. (laughs) Like, and that's what I do. I carry the ladder and I kill dudes. That's what I do. And it takes a while for you to be, get to a position where you see the big picture and you're not like, Oh fuck those dudes. He's just a truck driver. When you get in the ranks, you're like, do we need that dude? Like take care of him. He's a truck driver. We need him for X in it. I think what you see is some of the younger guys on Instagram are the guys who are doing that. They're still the guy who colored in the box. They're still the guy who didn't understand the big picture. And I think we, I, I, this is one of the things I just want to talk about. I just felt like we're leaving behind really good veterans because they don't feel like they belong because the cool guy voice is the loudest in the room and it shouldn't be, yep. you know, like there's always someone cooler than you, mm-hmm. you know, yep. uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's hard to realize that until you're, yeah, and when you're in the soft community, you see it real quick, you know, yep. regardless what unit you're in, doesn't matter. You could be in the unit and you're not the coolest guy in the room yeah. ever. Yeah. You're not Pat Payne. Chill out. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said at the beginning, like even the guys that do say, you know, join the military and go straight into the soft community, like their blinders are on probably even more so than a lot of other people that are in the military that serve maybe, you know, in a, in a regular army unit or regular non soft mm-hmm. unit and then work their way into selection and then, you know, find their calling basically within the special operations community. And I've, I saw it all the time when I was in Ranger Battalion is like people would, and I even did it sometimes too. I'm sure I would joked along with it and stuff like that, but you trash talk and make fun of the other, you know, MOSs that are in other units, even surrounding your compound. But I always like tried to have that empathy and be like, listen, if we didn't have these other guys that were supporting us, we wouldn't be able to run these missions. We wouldn't be able to fill up the fuel up the birds. We wouldn't be able to get you know, chow here on the base. We wouldn't be able to do it's a lot like, of the things. It's like, dude, I do. lift weights all day yeah. and I don't have to pull a tower. I don't have to pull guard duty in the tower because I can just lift weights and eat chow and go on mission because we have those dudes. Exactly. And yeah. so not, you know, it's, it's the same mentality that's happening right now is like people in on the Instagrams or on the YouTubes that are highlighting the cooler side of the military. They're mm-hmm. forgetting about, you know, they're not having empathy for the other people. They're not, they're completely forgetting about the other side of the story. You know, all the people that were there to support them. Well, I think that what it's also doing is, uh, and Jeremiah, you may have more to touch up on this, but just from what I see as a civilian looking at social media, you know, obviously we follow a lot of gun channels and support a lot of, you know, two way networks and all that, but you're seeing a lot of this huge milsim network of people of civilians that got fucking expensive ass gear. Like they've got nods, they've got ops core helmets, they've got everything. Yeah. And like, you know, they're running fast drills and it's like, that's gotta be totally different when you're getting shot at. Like, you're not going to react the same way. You're probably gonna do the best, but I mean, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't shame that whole Milsom community, but to me, it kind of just looks like it's playing war in a sense. And maybe you know more about that than I do. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's definitely kind of glamorized. Um, which I don't think war should ever be like, you know, have like this glamorous um, appeal to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the analogy I use right now because it's kind of popular is like the show Yellowstone. So like everyone sees this show and they see these cowboys like, oh man, I want to be a cowboy and like 
people text me or like DM me all the time and all the, and asking me about, Oh, I want to roll with you. I want to do this. I want to do that. Yeah. And it's like, dude, you really do not know what you're asking to get yourself into. <laughs> no, it's fucking um, hard. The Cowboys aren't what you see on Yellowstone. You know, like it's the hardest work there is still around. Um, it's not as glamorous as you think. Um, you know, just because you're a green braid doesn't mean you don't cut grass. I'm like, do all the stupid stuff the regular army dudes do that think we don't do it's like bro the, there's no privates you think those shingles are going to go on the roof by themselves like we do everything and i think that it's very easy to glamorize like the gunfights the kit the those kind of things and for whatever reason these like you said the milsim guys they see like one drill or there will be you know an old special operations guy or, or former guy and, and teaching tactics and techniques. And, and I'm just not, I'm not a fan of all that stuff. Um, I think there's a lot of mistakes that people make. I think there's a lot of state mistakes that, you know, quote unquote operators make when they're training. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to like highlight a bunch of stuff, but there's drills that guys do. Um, and how can I explain this with, you know, for everyone list, other listening, but my f- biggest pet peeve on the internet is the very fast like tack mag or like reload with their AR where they'll drop their mag on the AR and as fast as they can, they'll stick another AR mag in and keep firing. And I'm like, you realize that's reinforcing the wrong muscle, like um, muscle memory. If you're within 25 meters, you transition and engage with your secondary weapon system. Mm -hmm. If you're not within 25 meters, you see cover and then you do a mag change because anybody who's been shot at knows they're not going to stand there and do a mag change in the open and you have all these guys practicing this linear flat range crap and it's like that's not war dude like <laughs> this is you're cool you're shooting straight and then you want to like turn and look and do all the cool guy shit and like no reason why we're doing it so it's like i just think there's just so much crap that's out there and these guys have no idea and it's like i have people ask me stuff and they're like oh you worried about them taking your guns or this and that and i'm like dude ars like whatever you buy your fancy gun. Like every dude I know that's an operator doesn't care about triggers and all this crap. No. They they run like the cheapest, crappiest, like Bushmaster rifle. And like, if they want, <laughs> they're like a gun dude. They're all on the like Daniel defense or the roof tactical or something. But most dudes are like, yeah, I don't need any of that. It's like, bro, you know what I could do with my 30, 30? Like, come on, dude. It's not about the weapon system. You're, I think there's a, a very, a huge disconnect with how good, guys from you know team guys from seal teams kids from ranger battalion green braves are actually with their weapon systems and people try to mimic it and it's i think it's very very deceiving and i don't don't really know where else to go with that but it's like it's just it's like i don't really think people understand how much a perfect like how professional these guys really are mm -hmm. that are in special operations yeah i was i was pointing that out to bo because bo you know just seeing the things that are on Instagram or YouTube or whatever it was like, dude, look at, look at this sweet video. And I, it was cool. Like the cinematography was awesome. I'm not going to say what video it was, but cinematography was awesome. <laughs> but the whole time I'm just like picking apart these dudes. I'm like, that dude yeah. didn't pull security. That guy would have been shot. Yep. Uh, he didn't yep. clear his corner. He would have, yep. you know, not done a mag change like this in a doorway in real My life. My biggest like, is they always shoot through the threshold and I'm like, oh, cool. yeah, way to dig that corner, bud. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, um, <laughs> The the ones that kill me too is like the ranges that are set up to make everybody look like an operator, like the, yes. you know, not to call out any specifics, but like 
you know, the ones where people literally pay to go to a range. They walk them through the range. They go slow initially. Then they speed it up slowly, faster, 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 faster. Mm -hmm. And they pay for this experience and to get it videoed. And then they post it on their Instagram. And then they're the next like, you know, Keanu Reeves on uh, the, the next movie. You know what I mean? Like they're they're then now a badass and know how to use those weapon systems. But if you actually watched like their shot placement and just how fast oh, yeah. they're like flinging everything around, it's terrible. Like if you were yeah. actually engaging real enemies that are dynamic, they're not static, you know, just standing there waiting to get shot. Like you would not be running those types of drills to to practice that. It's all bad behavior. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of funny. Um, I know we were supposed to do this like a couple of days ago, but um, one of my like best friends on the planet, um, we were in third group together and he got out and he's been, um, he's been working for the agency for, you know, since for like six, seven years. And like I said, you're never the baddest dude in the room. Like he's the baddest motherfucker I know. And uh, we were just kind of talking about tactics and sharing some things and, and uh it's just super cool to see like what a real like a real ninja does versus like what you're talking about yep. um, ninja. You know, the, the range ninjas yeah. yep. so is there a proper way then do you think because i guess i don't want to take that away from people that have fun on the range and do their own thing obviously it's not for everybody mm -hmm. but is there a proper way do you think like civilians are just meant to do static target shit and not actually prepare for like a home invasion or do you think there's a proper way no, to do it? I, I think that it's good that people are so even when you look at like yeah we're kind of making fun of it in a way because we're we had a profession that we um i think it's a little how do i explain it i think it's a little bit of a dark art for us and we understand it more because we when you're in engagements and your friends die doing all the right things it's hard to see guys basically like play and it can get touchy for us. So I think that's where that comes from. I think it, I think some of that, like I want to quote them like kind of hatred, I guess, you know, we're kind of hating on it. Um, it's because, you know, I've seen guys do the, the right things and, and, and didn't make it. Um, so I, I think it's a good thing. I think if you're able to safely negotiate a stress shoot or be on the flat range and run and gun or whatever you want to call it. Obviously they're using that weapon system safely. They are understanding those weapon systems. They're all the basic things, you know, knowing your target, what's beyond your targets in front of your target, all those, all those great safety points. So I don't want to knock it too hard. Just let it be known that like, you're never the coolest guy in the room. You're still a nerd, like chill, bro. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a joke, you know, like, and it's like at the end of the day, we're soft guys. So we're going to have a little bit of ego. Like I'm going to have a little, like, I wouldn't be a green beret. I wouldn't have done the things I did in my life. If I didn't have a little bit of swag to it, it's like, don't get it twisted. You'll still get these hands, you know, like I'm a nice guy, but you know, so I think that's kind of where that comes from with some of the attitude from some of the soft guys. Um, but I, I do like, I, I do like the fact that civilians are getting into it. I think, um, for them to practice, like, you know, whether they're to defend in their family, I just think there's a fine line between whether we're calling it a sport or what may be a sport, you know, for a three gun or for the tactical games yeah. or for just being on a flat range, you know, without out there with your buddies, um, and really understanding like what a perceived threat is and how to best 
um, like maneuver or negotiate through those threats. Mm-hmm. The, the big, the common mistake I see is guys just don't see cover. Guys think they're going to get in a gunfight. They think that, you know, they're just going to draw as fast as they can and get on target. And it's like, dude, as soon as you move your hands fast, like if I have a gun, I'm moving my eyes to you and engaging in your smoke. Yep. And it's like, people don't train. I think realistically real realistic scenarios. We're training flat range scenarios where, which is getting us faster on target. Um, target acquisition, eye control, all these things that make you a better shooter. But unless you're practicing possible scenarios in in your house or around where you may be at, I think that's where some of the mistake is. And then going back to that, like, um, what's the cool stuff? You know, like what is, uh, like I said, everybody wants to be a cowboy until mm-hmm. you get on a horse and me and ride 30 miles. You don't want to be a cowboy anymore. And it's the same thing. It's like, I'm not saying you need to go to war by any means or get shot at. But I'm saying that there there is some kind of like sport, if you will, to it um, versus training real scenarios and really understanding that. And there are a lot of great instructors, you know, soft guys or military guys or police, police um, uh, law enforcement guys that are teaching great courses and doing great things. So I don't want to take anything away from people who who are going to the range. I think that's awesome you know, definitely being safe is the best thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like, don't tag me in your civil war stuff dude. like, <laughs> no, like it's not, <laughs> yeah, I, it's not that ahead, serious, man. I like to, um, reinforce like what you're saying too, is I don't think anybody from the military, well, for the most part, I can't speak for everybody, but from the special operations community or military community would say like civilians should just completely drop owning firearms and like learning and training and how to use it properly properly like i completely disagree with that notion like people should understand and know what they're getting into what i have a hard time with is somebody who's going to the gun shop buying an ar and and then immediately going outside or going in their backyard or you know going to a mound to a a range whatever it is and trying to replicate what they're seeing Mm -hmm. like and just try and run through drills and go crazy and that's not the right way to learn and and Honestly, what you're doing is glorifying wrong behaviors um, by watching. Right, you're just sense. adding training scars. Yeah, it, the more training scars you have, and you add the the more improper technique happens. And, and I think if you look at it like um, like any other sport, you know, whether it's boxing or something that's very technical, because shooting and the way guys are running and gunning these days are is very technical. Um, so it's just like boxing or anything else that's similar to that, like wrestling, whatever. It's like you need to know technique, proper technique. If you're not doing proper technique, you're just creating training scars. And then if you do receive training or coaching from someone who is a professional, they have to go back and try to erase these training scars that you've created and these bad habits you've created. Yep. I'd much rather train with like a Marlin lever action up in the snowy mountains while you're packing horses <laughs> hiding up it's in trees so and cooler shit. to me i'm like dude it's so it's so badass yeah like, but do you like in the western <laughs> movies right where you where you take a lever action like flip it to reload it oh, yeah. that's the right way to yeah, do it right so yeah, I, i'm curious what's the uh the worst experience you've had either on a packing trip or on a horse wherever you're at Whew, um i'm sure you've got plenty of stories especially because i know you go out quite a bit by yourself yeah um I haven't anything like super terrible. I've had some decent, some decent scares. I mean, I've, I've came out of, um, I was coming out of Indian Creek one day up in up my hometown in Ennis. Um, 
and uh, I ran into um, I didn't even see it. My horse did. My horse kind of picked his head up and and kind of like ears up looking. And I was like, and he he was breathing real heavy and just smelling. And I was like, oh crap! And as soon as I I I um was like trying to smell and see if I could see anything, it was snowing pretty good. And I look up right in the trail, this huge sow with two cubs just staring at me, maybe like. 25 meters away so i was like well i don't know how this is gonna go uh and unlike the movies for anyone's listening all the movies they shoot from their horses yeah that's um i mean one out of a hundred horses you could ride by himself somewhere so i mean let alone shoot off of one. Oh yeah <laughs> so uh so i was just like well i don't know if i should jump off my horse and like pull out my pistol and get ready or see what happens and i just kind of stopped and waited and she, she, she took off down down the draw a little bit and every now and then i'd see her stand up and and pick her head up out of the brush out of the willows and, and watch me um but i mean that was a little, little bit of a pucker factor nothing nothing too major um i had uh so on my birthday and i did i tried to i tried to get better at instagram i'm, I'm horrible i'm also 40 years old so I'm not the best at social media. Um, but on my birthday, my 40th birthday, I actually ran, rode out of, um, out of camp and it's 25 miles into the wind river range. Um, some of the roughest country there is in the outfitting world. Like when I tell people other outfitters where that camp is they're they, they're like, Oh man, that's insane. Like they know that trail, they know that area. Um, I got snowed in for like two days straight. I couldn't get out. Mm-hmm. Some of the other guides took the hunters out before the snowstorm came in. So I was like, Hey, I'll stay, take care of camp. Um, get the rest of the horses load up, pull camp, get some of the tents down and stuff. So not come out. I ended up getting stuck for like three days, mm. uh, on my way out. Uh, there was like hundred mile an hour winds. I mean, it was blowing the mules over. Mm-hmm. I had to by myself, unpack some tents, um try to you know put saddles back on i lost i completely lost a saddle pad like it went up in the air and was just gone um one of the pack saddle pads i mean it was it was pretty rough it was pretty gnarly yeah um ended up walking like 15 miles of that just dragging the pack string with you know because they they just wanted to lay down the wind was so bad and it was above tree land i'd hurry up and get off um but that's about it i mean i've had some pretty good rodeos you know yeah um some pretty good train wrecks, pretty good wrecks. Um, I was very fortunate that I learned from, I mean, just the, just the most awesome, gnarliest cowboys that have been doing it for like, they're like third or fourth, fourth generation outfitters mm-hmm. in the Wind River Range. So they've been doing it since the late 1800s. And I mean, I, I couldn't have had like a better, better mentors and teachers. So I've seen or heard enough stories around the campfire to um you know take my time pack properly follow all of the old school tips and tricks that the old cowboys had and and when i when something was about to happen it was maybe a story they told me and a mistake they did and i was able to kind of correct that mistake before it happened um so i haven't had anything too too crazy i mean i'm sure to the normal person they'd be like that's gnarly in general (laughs) if they saw what i'm saying is not too crazy (laughs) Um, but at the same time i mean i i personally haven't i've been fortunate i haven't seen um nothing too gnarly you know well what i think is uh maybe you'll you'll disagree or you'll agree but i think that for people listening the closest thing that i can reference is obviously the movie wind river um Mm -hmm. i don't know if you've seen it but it's uh when I was up there myself, I was up there in the heart of winter in late February or no, 
I think it was early February. And it gets brutal. I mean, you're talking like you get stuck up there alone, frostbite, your lungs will burst. It gets pretty bad. So like a lot of the areas that I see you riding in kind of remind me of that movie and some of the areas that I've spent up there. And that reservation is, is, uh, it's pretty oppressed compared to some of the oh, other yeah. reservations that I've been to. And it's, it's very sad once you step foot, if you have access, like I've been granted access to go on that reservation and it's, it's tragic. You see people huddled around, you know, trash cans on fire, people strung out on yeah, meth yeah. and heroin out there. And it's, it's pretty chaotic. I think the next one would probably be uh, Pine Ridge, um, like South Dakota. Oh, areas. Yeah. Pine, yeah Pine, I think Pine Ridge is actually the poorest um, county in the United States. I believe uh, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're talking about Crowheart. Crowheart is definitely, um, mm. yeah, it's, it's got, it's like spots in Crowheart that are definitely very impoverished, very, you know, like that. And then it has other spots where, you know, guys have, do have a couple horses and, and run businesses or run cattle and stuff. So, um, it's a very, it's, it's right outside of Dubois and Dubois, Wyoming is the most remote, uh, city in lower 48. Mm -hmm. So if you just think of Crowheart, even though it's not as remote as Dubois, technically it's on the same, you know, highway, but, um, a little more access, but I mean, it, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. So there's, there's oh, yeah. nothing there. There's no jobs. Um, I think that the, the native culture is something that, um, I think a lot of Americans just dismiss and we want totally. to forget about. And I, and, and what's kind of crazy to me is that um, if you have been to an Indian reservation and you, and you do know uh, native people, it's like our country did something less than 150 years ago mm -hmm. that we act like didn't happen. And what's going on right now, I think in politics with coronavirus and just some of the rights being taken away and a lot of, and I'll, and I'll try to keep it simple. What I think is happening. It's like a lot of these millennials, they like the simplicity of being able to walk to like the grocery store. And then I walk, I live in one building. I walk to this building. I go to work in everything's close. It's remote. They don't, they don't care about like nature and everything else because it was really not part of their lives. They grew up playing PlayStation and Xbox and they're on their phone all day. Mm -hmm. So they understand, they like that simplicity. And when you look at what's going on with public lands, it's like, oh, we have so much access. It's like, yeah, we have, there's a lot of public land, but have you ever tried parking somewhere and actually accessing that public land? Like it's a lot harder than you think it is. Yeah. You can't just pull out a map and look at national forest. There's nowhere to park. When you do park there, it says no overnight parking, it says no camping, it says this. It's so difficult to access public land. And the reason why I bring up the native culture is because it's like, yeah, give us our guns, trust the government. It's like, yeah, that worked really well for for thousands of people less like a hundred years ago. And I think that if we go down the wrong path, history is just gonna repeat itself. And it, and instead of being a race thing where we're, you know, and yes, natives had kind of invaders, if you will, into their land. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it's just happened with classism. And I think that our our society has this huge issue with classism where the, the haves and the have nots, there's a giant disparity between the two. And the more rights you take away, the less the have nots actually have yeah. versus right now when there's a lot of access to public land and things you can do, you don't have to have money to be, to be happy and have a great life. Um, so I think that, I think if you, if people studied or read more on what happened, you know, to Indians and the Indian reservations and why they exist and, the culture it is now and 
you know, and, and understanding, you know, how native women are just being abducted and gone missing and and no one talks about these issues, um, and alcoholism and just government dependency. I think if you look at that and you take government dependency and alcoholism and sexual abuse, child abuse and neglect and all those issues, it really goes back to 150 years ago when you force people to do something they don't want to do, but it's like, well, you either die or you do it. Yeah. yeah. So they want to survive and they do it. And if you fast forward a hundred years from now, if we keep going down the path that we're doing when it comes to people's rights and freedoms, I think that it will, we could see ourselves in a very similar situations as Indian mm-hmm. reservations, but just in normal, you know, states or cities or, or what's going on. And I'm not trying to be like scary about it, but I just think we need to understand. I urge people to, get involved and learn more about native culture and mm-hmm. what's going on with, you know, just kids. I'm a, I'm a, I'm huge on kids. Anything to do with kids. I agree. Yeah. I don't care what you're doing in life, like help kids, brown, white, black, yellow, doesn't matter, help kids. And I think if people start to understand some of the, the issues that, that are going on in your reservations, um, it's a little eye opening to what you see the government doing now to us. And that's both sides. Of the aisle. I'm not, I'm not talking liberal, conservative i'm talking the government itself what they're doing totally yeah i mean people should absolutely look this up because i i just read um an article i don't know a few weeks ago or something like that about the uh the abductions from um native people and and tribes and then also from uh immigrant children and things like that like how quickly they're disappearing because as united states citizens we don't we can turn a blind eye to that. It's easier to turn a blind eye to that because it's not, even though it's in our own backyard, we don't necessarily directly associate with either people who are immigrating or people who've been here for millennia. You know what I mean? It's been so easy for people to push it out of their peripheral to where they don't even have to pay attention anymore. And it's, it's incredibly sad and frustrating that like, I know that there's movements for a lot of other social injustices and things like that. And I'm not saying those should go away, but there's plenty of social injustice like within, you know, the native tribes on our own lands that has been going on for, again, like you said, over, well, it's been hundreds of years, really, um, that people just aren't paying attention to it and it's still happening today. Um, Absolutely. And they just have their blinders off. They only pay attention to what's, you know, on the news, what's on the front page of the the New York times or whatever. And it, I, yeah, I just wish people paid attention more, listen to the peripheral stories, like really put a lot of time into the the stories that matter. Mm-hmm. You know what I think, yeah, um, sure. Jeremiah to relate to what you were saying, what personally got me really fired up, I guess about learning more about native American tradition and the culture that is, is still going on as that. And what's sad too, is that, um, from my experience and, uh, I'm more close to the Navajo nation because it was much closer to California. You know, you got Colorado, mm-hmm. New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and those areas, that whole quad. But they were explaining to me that um, that a lot of their police force and a lot of people don't crack down on things like missing women and children. And when I was out there, I was out there in January. It was my, I think, 28th birthday uh, two years ago. And I remember going out there and visiting my friend Josh who lives on the reservation and we were out there with his girlfriend and she's like, do you want to go check out my house? It got burned down, but it may be some cool photos for you to take. And I'm kind of like, uh, yeah, sure. I guess, you know, like 
I didn't know if it was gonna be rough for her and we get on this dirt road and her whole family's been buried there on site. It, it's literally fenced with like chicken wire and just like some tombstones. And I asked her, you know, what happened? And she's like, well, other Navajo people burned down our, our home. And I was like, why? And she's like, well, there's a big jealousy factor. Like my family has a certain amount of acres and each family, you know, our government gives them a certain amount and other people, you know, just kind of hate on each other. We're not really a close community anymore. And, you know, so I was like, why don't you call the police and they them do something. And my buddy kind of interrupted. He's like, Bo, the police don't do shit. Like there's people that go missing. And I think when I was there mm -hmm. January 20th, he told me at that year there was already seven in 20 days. There was already seven missing people that the police weren't like recording or looking for. And you'll see hitchhikers all up and down the highway. And it's kind of, mm -hmm. it really is a devastating thing. And I think if people can somehow find the invitation or find the interest to go to these places, whether they're a tourist and they just want to, you know, check out the pretty sites, I think it's important because when I went, it was very eye-opening and life-changing where once I got home, you'd see people bitching and moaning about a steak being overcooked. And you're like, fuck, dude, there's so much of a deeper thing out there mm -hmm. that you would have no idea of what I just saw. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's, it's, um, it's definitely a touchy subject. I, it, and it's, it's hard to like put your finger on like each nation has its own issues, its mm -hmm. own problems. Um, I look at like what was going on with, you know, the police issues and it's like, it's a power thing. Like the res police, they're policing their own people. They're not racist toward their own people, but the way they treat, the way they treat things or what they do, it's just, it's a, it's just power. Yep. Uh, and I'm not saying that there's no racism in policing or, or, or addressing that issue, but, but it's just, um, I think people underestimate how people act when they're in power. And I think a good example is like the governors and mayors of and the way they're treating COVID and, you know, rules for thee, not for me. And, um, the Indian reservation is a very good example of that. And, and it's definitely hard. And, and it, you know, a lot of them, um, proud people, they don't want help. Um, they don't want outsiders there. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, they don't trust the government. They don't trust outsiders. Um, some people are, they're very racist. They don't like white people. Some do some, do. It, it's a crazy dynamic, but when you look at it, it's like, um, it's not, it's so new that I think people really don't understand it. It's like my grandmother, she was sent from Colorado to a mission in, um, and this is like the thirties as a kid, like she was sent to a Spanish mission where she was basically like whitewashed and became like, no, you're now Spanish. So she spoke Spanish. She under, you know, she was, and almost raised like, Hey, you're not Indian. You're not native. You are Hispanic. And they changed your last name. So I think that like people don't understand that. And if you look at Jim Crow laws and like everyone wants to talk, um, you know, reflect on civil rights issues, but it's like, yeah, in the seventies, like natives, it was like native women couldn't even vote to like the sixties. And it, it is a crazy subject. And, and I do wish, I don't know how people can get more involved, but if you just research it, and you know what what does, doesn't matter what side of the aisle you sit on but i think if, if you see some of the things the government's doing you can relate that to rewind you know 100 years ago mm -hmm. and kind of see what's happened to that that um certain culture of people um yeah so just just pretty don't, crazy just don't go to reservations and say how can i help you because 
most of the people will say <laughs> <Stick> your truck <laughs> your tailgate exactly most people will say we don't need your help get the fuck out of here yeah. um i mm-hmm. think if you go with an understanding that they don't need you um and that they really don't need your help if you just go there because you're right. a caring person and you want to be closer to nature and you want to understand the culture and you're interested and you actually want to listen i'd say that's the closest thing um from my personal experience of being out there but i, I kind of want to get into you know, you coming from a Native American roots and, and, and the culture, what made you, I mean, you told us what inspired you to join the military, but was there ever kind of like a weird thing with obviously a lot of the controversy and kind of hatred for the U.S. government for what they did to Native Americans? What made you want to actually be a part of that? Mm. So when I was a kid, um, when you go to powwows, every, every warrior when I say warrior, I mean World War II vets, Korean War vets, Vietnam vets. Um, they dance, and only warriors could dance a certain certain dances. Mm-hmm. Um, and like on their shields, they would paint like you'd see a guy with like the black horse painted on his shield or first cab or you know the old like the the original like uh, um, two seven five like Ranger Scroll or. Um, or like the Marine, you know, like the, the big one or whatever it was the Marines have. Um, and they were the only ones allowed to dance. They're the only ones allowed to touch like Eagle feathers and just certain traditions. Really? And yeah. And, and it was just like, those guys were proud to be warriors and be soldiers. And I think that I actually made an Instagram post about it. Um, the native American culture, and that's including Alaska natives and Hawaiians are the highest, um, by race or by, you know, population of people, they're the highest to serve in the military. When you take pure numbers, no other state, not people from different states, not people from different races, different cultures, different backgrounds. They have the highest population of people that serve in the United States military. Um, so I think there is a little bit of not trusting the government, but I also think there's a lot of honor and a lot of pride for being an American. And being the first Americans, being mm-hmm. the original Americans, I think there's a lot to do with that. And I think right now with social media, it's easy to see this really woke culture. Yeah. But a lot of the older guys, they don't have that. They don't. They don't see things that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they're defending their homeland. They're defending their people. They're warriors, and it's this culture of warriors that we're. Um, by circumstances, you know, throughout history, whether that was land or the Buffalo or a reason that they couldn't be warriors anymore, um, kind of long for that. And it's in, it's in their blood and, it, and it's just part of you. So I think that that was like something that was very cool to me and to be recognized by the older warriors, um, you know, to be told that that was my calling. That's what I mm-hmm. was going to do was be a soldier. So I think that was like my, like what I try to explain to people or, or share with people, you know, that was my experience as a kid. How, how long, so I know you mentioned you're a Green Beret and, and you're now, you know, officially retired as of January. Um, correct. How, yes. so how long were you enlisted for? And I guess if you can share anything, I don't want to go into too many details. If you're obviously still under contract or if you've already shared this info out there, you know, plenty of times, but I kind of want to oh, get no, into I'm- any stories yeah, that like inspired you or that you, you know, were faced with when you were out there that have kind of transitioned into your civilian life? 
So um, I guess I could start by like just breaking like obviously twenty year career very long. Um, I won't you know oh, excuse me um, go into it too much too much detail. Mm-hmm. But um, so I started out. I joined the National Guard in um, ninety nine from Las Vegas, and I went in the National Guard first because I was gonna do um, like I was gonna go to college and like you know like yeah, and I figure it out. Um, my dad was enlisted when he was active duty and then became an officer when he was in the national guard. So he was kind of big on like, you know, he was a very smart guy. He was like, you want to do smart guy stuff? Like he was in infantry, like, you know, he was like, you don't want to do that. And in my mind, that was just kind of like, okay. But I think he was more like trying to maybe protect me a little bit or, or try to help me out. And I was like, yeah, I'll go be an officer. So that's what kind of, I thought I was going to do. Uh, I went to basic training and, um, Actually, real quick, I don't want to cut you yes. off too too early, but you were in Las Vegas and you were near a pretty big Air Force base where mm-hmm. they fly fighter jets and stuff like that. You see it every day. Yeah. Why didn't you think about the Air Force at all? I'm just curious because I I ran into a similar situation. Yeah. So okay. So my original plan was so my dad was the program director for Mercy Air. He was the head flight nurse and ran um, all the paramedics and flight nurses and you know, and it was that was a head fighter. So all of his pilots were like old Vietnam, like every single one of them were Vietnam guys or guys that flew like, um, Panama era. Um, and even that we had like two air force guys and they were like air force commandos flew. Um, we're all in like, but basically everyone was in special operations or they were in like first cab 101st in Vietnam, like LZ X-ray, like these dudes are all in books. Like, I mean, I had a really cool experience with those guys and talking and sharing their kind of their war stories about being pilots. So my, I didn't want to be like, and the air force guys were like, and I think people are misconstrued when they see fighter pilots. Like that's also 1% yep. of the population. That's like being, and it's not even like being in a Ranger or a green Beret. That's like being CAG. Like if you're a fighter pilot yeah. in the Navy or in the air force, like that's a tiny, tiny fraction. Like you can do everything right. And you'll fly C-130s. Yep. Like it, mm-hmm. it's it's rolling the dice on how you get selected for that, or how you even get in that program. So for me, I had enough education going into it that I was like, all right, my plan was I was going to go in the guard, I was going to do college, I was going to knock out everything, and then I was going to do um, put in my one officer packet. So instead of being an officer, I was going to go straight to flight school. So I had everything dialed in to do that, and I was going to be I wanted to be a Blackhawk pilot. So, um, but when, but when I, when I joined, there was like a couple, there was only like two units in Las Vegas. One of them was like a mechanized unit. And my dad was like, everything on a takeaway is 300 pounds. You don't want to be a tanker. So I was like, yeah, cool. <laughs> and then there was an MP unit and I was like, yeah, I'll go be an MP for whatever years. And I was like, that's cool. Cause if I, something happens in the military, I want kind of wanted a job where I could fall back on. So I was like, what if I go in the army and it's not what I think it is. And this is like pre-war, you know, this is 99. So I was like, what if I join the army four or five years and now what I think it is, maybe I'd be a police officer. Like I wouldn't mind, you know, being Metro or something in Las Vegas or going back to Montana, being a sheriff or something. So those were kind of like fallback plans or like stepping stones the way I was going to use the military to, um, you know, through adulthood, basically. Um, I went to basic training and I just had a blast, man. Like I, I loved it so much. I also have this weird, even now I have this weird, like, um, 
I like to see people suffer, you know? So like when we're getting <laughs> smoked and then like, just getting crushed, like I think it's hilarious. I think it's so funny to see just grown men just breaking. Um, so I had an amazing time at basic, um, great experience. I had, a, a an awesome drill sergeant that just like, I think he saw like potential in me and, um, you know, held me to higher standards, you know, like I was in charge more, I was more responsible and uh, responsibility positions of responsibility versus other, other soldiers. So I came back and I graduated in November of 99 from basic training at AIT as an MP. And then basically within, I went to my recruiter and I was PCSing on active duty to Fort Hood, Texas, January of 2000. For so D, oh, oh, PCS, it's a permanent permanent change yeah. of station, right? Station, yeah, yep, yep. Just yeah, so so I was moved, like basically, moved I went from National Guard, only going to do a part time, to joining the Army full time, and then going to Fort Hood, Texas. Okay. Um, as an MP, um, I had, I was an MP, um, for eight years, so I did, um. What did I do? So I was kind of the guy that was like, I was always great at PT. I was like, Hey, I just did what old Sarge told me to do. You know, I was like, Hey, there's this. And I, like I won baton death march when I was a private, you know, like I won it two years in a row. And for people who don't know, it's, it's a 26 mile road march commemorating the Island of Bataan that the world war two POWs had to walk. Jesus. And, um, and it's this giant race. They call it like the hardest marathon in the world. Because it's that altitude, it's in sand, it's in the mountains of, uh, it's outside of El Paso, Texas. In the, in oh, the, okay, in the I know what area that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I just did stuff like that, and I, I loved it, you know. And I, but I was always that guy who like underestimated myself. Like if I saw a dude with a Ranger tab, or if I ever saw a Green Beret, I would just be like, oh man, that dude is like, it's crazy. You know, like I never thought that I could do any of that. Um, Fast forward a couple of years, I was always just kind of told like, hey, be here, go try out for this or go do that. So I was on like SRT, which is uh, special reaction team was like the military SWAT team. Right after September 11th, um, I deployed to Egypt. I was doing PSD and then we were running uh, basically like outer cordon for the Navy SEALs that were hitting. Um, how do I say this with security clearance? Uh, they were just they were we were basically just raiding boats in the med okay um that were basically uh, a lot of al-qaeda was is funded legally um which a lot of people don't know that uh so we're basically trying to attack the money follow the money at this time and this is you know this is literally uh october november december january of 2001 yeah because we fund uh, don't in, we into 2002 because we fund um, al-qaeda right so yeah so I, okay so that was like my first like deployment, my first experience, special operations. And again, I'm just looking at these Navy SEALs. And I'm like, man, these dudes are so badass. Like, you know, fast forward a couple of years, um, ended up doing, got pulled for like a PSD gig, which is personal security detail for executives, like generals, senators, things like that. And then, um, kind of got like, I guess, what's the, I don't want to say a military acronym, but I was assigned to one duty station in Georgia, but I worked for um, special operations. Okay. Mm. So I would go work under special operations command. And that was like my first taste of like being around, like I'm going to the range with Delta force operators. I'm learning, I'm learning to drive from, I go to FBI schools or this and I went to all the best schools to learn how to be very good at 
um, personal security detail stuff. And then I did that for a while. And then I went, um, I did deploy the regular MP squad leader to Iraq in 2005, 2006, uh, which is a great experience. Um, I think a lot of times special operations guys don't really understand um, because oftentimes we color in a box. We're in charge of two guys. We, we, we hit a target. We're responsible for just these two guys on this target. And I think a lot of times special operations guys knock or don't really understand how much capability like a regular squad leader, an MP or an infantry squad leader has. Like I'm, I have a, I have a, um, like a JFO with me who can control aircraft and talk to guys. Like I, I actually learned a lot, um, and learned a lot of leadership challenges. Um, it was my first time that, you know, we had guys get killed. Uh, one of my soldiers, his best friend got killed and it was like, Hey man, it's like, he still has to ride in the gun. Like he still has to pull security. Like we're still going on a mission. And I think that's like some of the hardest leadership challenges I've ever had is try mm-hmm. to motivate somebody who's literally their roommate, the same, the guy who lives in your tent with you mm-hmm. is killed. It's your best friend to go out and go on patrol and do the exact same thing your friend was killed doing. Yep. Um, so it was 05-06 in Iraq was a, was a pretty rough year. I think for, for everybody, it didn't matter what unit you were in. You could have been in a Delta operator or you could have been a truck driver in the 101st. Like, yeah, I think oh, year, 05, you know, 06, 07 yeah. were like the deadliest years in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard for everybody. Yeah, so then right after that, I went to, I always wanted to be a drill sergeant. Um, so I went to drill sergeant school and um, that was my, like my highlight of the army. Um, being a Green Beret, being a team sergeant um, didn't compare to uh, my time as a drill sergeant. Um, and this is pre, this is 07 to 08. So this is pre like, you know, social media is, you know, Facebook, I guess, you know, and it, it isn't what it is today with Instagram and the Facebook, the Facebook and stuff. So, um, I'm super old. I said the Facebook, um, <laughs> that was the start of it. I was like, that was like the, the closure. 08 was like the end of MySpace. Yeah. I think, yeah. And then, or it was yeah. still around, yeah. but it transitioned into full music. And then yeah. I think Facebook was like, Oh, seven, Oh eight. I may be way off, but I just remember it was like coming yeah. then. <laughs> yep. That's funny. So at drill sergeant school, um, one of the drill sergeant leaders, uh, one, basically like a drill sergeant, drill sergeant, he got up and talked to the class and he was basically saying that when you're a drill sergeant, that this is your, he said, none of you guys are going to be a rock star. No, no one here is going to be a movie star. And when you're a drill sergeant, this is your chance to influence a couple hundred or a couple thousand people in your life. No other time will you be able to influence that many people. And I think now with social media, it's a little bit different, right? Like you can probably influence more people now, or maybe a positive light if you, if you do it correctly. But I really took that to heart and I was like, you know what? I just want to pay it forward that my drill sergeant was such an awesome influence to me that I wanted to do that for everyone else. So I just, I really, I loved it. it and it was like, I'm so competitive that I really liked. I wanted to be the best platoon. I want to be the best company. I love that camaraderie. I had a great group of drill sergeants that even the ones that weren't as good, it was like peer pressure because there was so many good drill sergeants that really cared about the soldiers. 
that was like peer pressure. If you were a shitbag, we didn't want you. So you, you can just sit in the office, dude. And it, and it was, it was like that. So I think we, as a collective group, I met some of the most amazing people being a drill sergeant and guys that I'm like brothers with to this day. Um, and just training those soldiers and putting everything you had into it. And it really taught me a lot about leadership about, um, and my biggest thing I learned being a drill sergeant was, and the, to me, the true definite leadership definition of leadership is no one cares what you've done in the past. It's about what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And I, and I take that to heart to this day. So it's like, if you were the, you could have won the medal of honor and been the best team leader that's ever that three, seven, five range of time has ever seen. But if you're a shitty first sergeant in the 82nd right now, you know what you are? You're just a shitty first sergeant yeah. in the 82nd, man. <laughs> no one cares. So if you don't take that to heart, and as a drill sergeant, it's just a faster window because we're pushing privates through, you know, if we're just doing basic training only, you know, it's every nine weeks. If we're doing OSIT, that's 19 weeks. So you're just getting new soldiers and new soldiers every couple months. So if you're the drill sergeant that your first year you were low crawling in the mud, you know, at the obstacle course and having a blast and like yelling at your privates and just having a great time with them as they're running through the obstacle course and doing these fun events that they, that most people join the army to do, right? Like most people, that's what they thought the army was going to be is like swinging on ropes and crawling through mud and all this other crap. But if you fast forward a year and a half from now and you're just the drill sergeant that's standing in a Gore-Tex jacket that the, a, a jacket that the, these soldiers have never seen before with your arms crossed pouring rain. Cause you're miserable and you're just yelling at them. But then I'm over here, a full camo on my face, low crawling through the mud, getting them motivated. Like they look at you and they're like, that dude's a dirt bag. I yeah, never want to yeah. be like that guy because you can't stand there and say like, Oh, I did it before. Like, that's cool. But these, these kids have never seen you do it before. So how do they know? So if you take that, and I think it's just a smaller circle of life, basically, with being a drill sergeant, if you take that as in your career through any leadership that you do, whether that's owning a business or being a manager mm-hmm. or the military, it's like, no one cares, man, what you did in the past. Like, if you're good right now, you're good right now. And everyone's going to have their hiccups, their their ebbs and flows, of, especially as war has changed us as leaders and what we've seen in our personalities. But that doesn't mean that you can just kind of like rely on your past. Yep. So that's why I had just such a great time um, being a drill sergeant. That that, that was awesome. Uh, um, and oh, go ahead. I mean, interrupt you. Yeah. What's crazy is um, I hadn't realized how much prior service you had before going to selection. So I'm interested to hear, like, as you go into that phase when you you decide to go to selection, like, what was that? You know, tell us that that process, but yeah. you know, what was that like carrying so, that experience into? Um, you said you were in third group, right? Yeah. So, yep. um, when I was a drill sergeant, I was at Fort Leonard Wood, and they have Sapper School at Fort Leonard Wood. Um, the day I got there, I was basically just like hounding my first arm. I was like, I want to go to Sapper School. I want to try to go to Sapper School. And he was like, All right, man, like, do a year on the trail, do a good job. Like he wasn't, you know, he's just like telling all like blowing smoke, you know, like, yeah, do a good job, bro, whatever. So, um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging. Um, but like, I'd, I was always about being like is my platoon. And it was about my guys. Like I want my platoon to be the best. So I always, I went drill sergeant the cycle like three times when I was a drill sergeant, we were the best company in battalion 
every all two years I was there. Um, I rewrote actually rewrote the BRM program for all of Tradoc when I was there. So I wow. like the, even what they're doing now is is what I implemented when I was a drill sergeant. Um, so anyway, I got a chance because of my performance to go to Sapper School. So I went to Sapper School as an MP, and obviously, people don't know this is basically like Ranger School. It's a patrolling leadership school with an engineer focus. Um, I know zero about demolition. I know zero about engineer stuff. I just studied. Um, I would I met the Sapper instructors because I used to fight all the time. Um, like at the fight house and basically it's just a bunch of drill sergeants and sapper instructors. We just go and just bang. And I love martial arts, love wrestling and boxing and Muay Thai. So great time with those dudes. And they basically were like, Hey, here's a packet, study it. I went to sapper school and I, was, I ended up being an honor grad at sapper school. So it was my very first time being around peers that weren't MPs. It was like, I was always used to like, like when I went to Beanock and um, you know, and that's the people listening. That's the school to be, um, like a squad of staff sergeant so, in the army. Last um, episode, I was explaining what advanced leader course is. It's now called B or it was B knock. Now it's ALC. ALC. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I'm old. I went to PLDC. Yeah. Which um, is now WLC. Primary leadership course. Oh, interesting. Instead yeah. of WLC. Um, so I mean that every course I went to and, and PLDC was everybody, um, I was there, I went to Fort Benning, so I was there with a bunch of Rangers and I won like Iron Man, And, um, that was kind of my first experience, I guess, being around other people, but I, I didn't really judge that. I was just like, oh yeah, I'm good at PT. So like, whatever. Um, but it was kind of eye opening for me. Cause it was like, I've always been like top dog PT, you know, like physically wise. And I, but I was like, it should be like, I wasn't not to sound cocky, but it was just like, I train all the time. I run like, this is what I do. I, I need to be the best, but I was so scared and like always underestimated myself. And I went to cyber school and crushed it. Um, and then right after cyber school, I went to SLC or ANOC. Um, then, which is basically the school you have to be to be a platoon sergeant or, or a sergeant first class in the army. Mm-hmm. I went there as an MP. Um, and at graduation, I was, um, I was uh, the Ironman award again, and um, I got a couple, I forget what the other words were, it's so long ago. But I was coming off the stage, and my, um, the the battalion commanders, I was still a drill sergeant, technically, I would like just finished um, being a drill sergeant, and I was on deck to go to Hawaii as, a, um, as an MP. So I'm coming off the stage, and the general shakes my hand, and he says, congratulations. And he puts a ranger tab in my hand, but he was an infantry officer. Um, I thought he was just giving me like a motivation, like drive on tab and like, cool, man. My Sergeant major shakes my hand, gives me a coin. And he says, January 3rd. And this is literally <laughs> like the day we go on Exodus. So this is like December 18th. And I'm like, January 30. And you know, I'm like, what's our major. And he's like, ranger school, bro. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I want to go. He's like, yeah, I want to go. And he's like, you're going to fucking ranger school January 3rd. I was like, uh, yeah, right. right. So I have like two weeks and anybody who's been to ranger school knows the packing list and like the things you have to buy. Like you, you literally go in debt. Like if you yep. don't have like an extra couple thousand dollars laying around, like to buy enough socks and stupid underwear that you, that you're, that no one ever keeps like that you have to have with this ranger packing list. So anyway, I'm rushing, like texting everybody, like, dude, I'm going to ranger school. Like anybody know, 
I'm an MP. Like, I don't know anybody that went to ranger school, you know? Like, mm-hmm. yep. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I ended up like getting like a death side with the, with the, uh, with the general who basically was like my mentor for ranger school, you know? He was like, hey, you need to do this. And, tra- and he went to ranger school in like the 70s or something, you know? He's old as shit. So I was like, okay, thanks, sir. <laughs> so I go to ranger school. Well, hold on real, right real quick. Yep. For anybody who doesn't know, hasn't been to ranger school, like, what he's talking about with the packing list, if you were missing one thing from that packing list, you could be dropped from the course. So basically you gotta get like a Hanes sponsorship or a Fruit of the Loom. Like, yeah, <laughs> it very it. specific, but like to the point to where there, there's so much attention to detail to that, that I'm impressed that with only two weeks, you were able to get basically up to snuff to be able to get there and get through that first, you know, week basically of um making sure you have the packing list you're pre- prepared for it and things like that because uh did you go to a, like a pre-ranger or anything for that like that no yeah so cyber school counts cyber school counts as pre-ranger okay all right so that i i bet i yeah. bet that helped a little bit because you said you do do some patrolling and things like that in sapper school right yes cyber okay. school is basically it's just like ranger school other than the first two weeks of general subjects you're doing mostly classroom you're going out every day doing demolition and and learning uh, everything. Cyber school is honestly the best course I've ever been in my life. Like wow, interesting. compared to all the AWG stuff, stuff I've done with guys from the unit, things I've done at Brunswick. Like it, it is the best course I've ever done planning wise. Like ranger school is great for planning, but compared to cyber school, it's, it's, it doesn't compare. Um, well, I'm not going to say it doesn't compare it. Ranger school is definitely up there for planning and for execution. Um, it's just more of a suck fest uh, yep. because it's longer. Mm-hmm. Cyber school is definitely harder. They smoke you way more. There's way more uh, attention to detail, but it's just not as long as ranger school. So I think that's why ranger school is harder because it's just yeah. so long and grueling and like. Well, I was no, telling Bo the last episode that like ranger school is any single day is really not that bad. But when you start right. compiling yeah. day after day after day of limited sleep, limited food, physical exhaustion, the mental strain, like, and having to lead people. And then on top of that, you're, when you're not leading somebody, you're trying not to be a turd. You're not trying to be a shit bag because if you are, say you do great as a leadership, but you suck everywhere else, you could get peered out of the school as well. Meaning like all Mm -hmm. your peers say, Hey, he did great as a leader. Yeah. He made a past under your eye, but everybody else knows that this dude's a turd and he shouldn't be here. You're, You're kind of your own form of a cowboy. Yeah. So it's, uh, there's a lot of similar traits. Yeah. It's, um, so yeah, oh, for sure. So, and then I want to make this like 10 hour podcast. Um, so (laughs) dude, we're here for you. I'm like so engaged. A a tiny bit was anybody who knows me is like, I'm not very aquatic. Like I didn't know how to swim hardly at all going to sapper school. And anybody who's been to sapper school knows that like, there's a giant, like three days in the lake. Um, and it's hard. It's Navy SEAL, buds, comparable, like you're carrying boats, like guys who've been and been to dive school, CDQC for special operations. They're like, it's comparable. I didn't know that. I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm fast. I run fast. I can run hard. So at cyber school, they called me Superman and then they thought it was funny because they're like, Superman has kryptonite. Because when we got to the lake, I was just, I was, yeah, brick. I suck. Horrible, <laughs> horrible. So in this time frame of two weeks on leave, I go to Las Vegas. I had an, um, 
my little brother's like old girlfriend used to swim for like UNLV. So I basically learned how to, I got like private lessons from her for like two weeks on how to swim. So I'm also like packing this, trying to figure out how to swim because I don't know how to swim and I don't want to fail ranger school the first week. I can't jump off a stupid rope and swim. So that's another part of it, right? Um, But anyway, at ranger school, I go, God's blessings, grace of God. It was so horrible. I went straight through ranger school, didn't recycle. Um, I actually got the leadership award. So that was like another like kind of eye-opening, like, okay, I'm obviously um, not just better than my peers. I'm com- I'm competing with guys at an elite level. When I was at Ranger School, my battalion sergeant major, he went to Sergeant Major Academy with this guy named Nick Bielik, Nick the Dick. Uh, anybody who knows him <laughs> as a Ranger Battalion hates Nick Bielik. Um, he actually became a regimental star major and it, yeah, a lot of guys went to selection and went to, took the long walk or went to SVS because of Nick Bielik. Anyways, Nick Bielik, he, my star major basically works out like a drug deal with him to send me to 175 to become the master breacher at 175. So I get done with ranger school. I meet Nick Bielik's awesome. He's like emailing my parents all the time at ranger school, giving them updates he helps my mom and dad like get on. My dad hasn't been on Benning since he was there at Ranger School in like the 70s or something. Um, helps him find graduation. Everything's good. Fast forward a couple of months. Like I go back to Fort Leonard Wood. I'll process. I'm on assignment to go to to rope or to uh, I'm on assignment to go to rope and then and go to one, 175. So RIP that I was talking about before, it's now called RASP. RIP is Ranger Indoctrination Program. So mm-hmm. that's for lower enlisted, I think e4 or maybe it's e5 and below and then rope is for um people who have prior experience or coming back to ranger regiment who are e6 or above oh gotcha okay so i go there the board everything's good it was literally like yeah nick b looks said you're good to go i'm good like it, it was it was awesome i was like i'm so stoked like i went from literally from being an mp you know, a couple of years ago to like, are you kidding me? Like dream job. I get to go to Ranger Battalion. Um, I get to Savannah and Nick Bielik is literally the very first day I walk in to, to like get on his calendar to talk to him. I'm not even in processing yet. This dude is like, Oh, you're an E7. I was like, uh, yeah, Roger Sergeant major. He's like, yeah, I can't use an E7. He's like, I'm trying to hide E7s that are bad boys right now. He's like, you're not from Ranger Battalion. I can't protect you. You're going to be needs of the army. So I'm like, uh, are you kidding me? Like, what? so now I'm needs at this point. I'm needs of the army 11 Bravo E7. Like, Where do you think you're going to go? Are you, yeah. So, um, I was like, okay, man, fine. I'll find a job. So I, one of my best friends was a platoon sergeant in, um, third ID and I interviewed and they were going to, um, give me my own platoon, get ready to go to Afghanistan. I basically go down there, meet the Sergeant Major, and he hates me because I'm a double tab, E7, and he thinks I'm like super cocky. And in my mind, I'm just like, I'm I'm just stoked. Like I just want a job, like whatever. So I'm like, yeah, dude, cool. So he treats me like garbage. So I literally just leave his office, walk straight to the recruiter. Like I saw the special forces sign sitting there and I was like, well, fuck it. Let me see what these dudes are about. So I'll go over there and he's like, He's like, um, so I told him, I was like, Hey man, here's my plan. I was going to go to range of time. Supposed to be there for like a year or two years. Then I was going to take the long walk. 
already have my packet, like everything's done. And I was already talking to the CAG recruiter at this, at this point. So I'm like, what do I do? And he's like, can you leave? He's like, can you leave Thursday? I'm like, yeah, why not? So he bumps like a PFC that was supposed to go to selection for me. This is like, this is like on a Friday. I talked to him. He's talking about next Thursday. So I get all my packing list back together again. I just graduated ranger school. So I had everything I needed for selection, go to selection, get selected, come back to, um, uh, Hunter out process PCS to Fort Bragg. I'm in the Q course. And this is all in the same year. This is January, 2010. And by October, 2010, I'm at Fort Bragg in the Q course. So I went from ranger school, January to in the Q course at Fort Bragg in October. And uh, tell, tell people what uh, the long walk is basically the selection to get into like Delta. So mm. SFOD detachment Delta, which is also CAG combat action group. So I know that's a, that's a lot there, but people who associate <laughs> Delta, Delta force and CAG, they're the same, same group. Basically just get selected for like special forces. No, no, no. Wait, no. Like, they're the tier they're one, like top, dudes. they're oh, the top, gotcha, top okay. people in, yeah. you know, military special operations. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, um, and then I graduated the Q course. I was assigned to third special forces group. Um, I spent, uh, how many years? Five and a half years in third special forces group. I have, um, three combat deployments with them, two to Afghanistan, one to Iraq. And then I, um, kind of a cool thing. I start the group star made really took care of me. My mom was really sick and, um, my brothers and I were looking to like, see if there's a way we get my mom to Colorado so she could use like medical marijuana and be part of that. She had rheumatoid arthritis since she was in her thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, the pills and all the drugs she was taking just kind of destroyed her immune system. So at this point, my brother is like, medicating my mom or helping my mom with like you know illegal marijuana basically like he's making butter helping my mom so we're like let's just get her to colorado let's figure this out um and then i basically talked to my star major my group star major about it and he was like yeah dude i do this all the time like i'll just change you to temp group so um i know a lot of people have like these crazy star major stories where guys didn't take care of them and i definitely have my share in my 20-year career but in this case um you know, they definitely took care of me and my family. That's cool. So I changed from third special forces group in North Carolina to 10 special forces group in Colorado. Right at that time, like marijuana became like medical, medical marijuana was good in Las Vegas or in Nevada. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have to move my parents, but I was in Colorado way closer to uh, Las Vegas. You know, I'm now I'm like a 12 hour drive yeah. to go see my parents and go see my mom, uh, more family time. So and then I spent, um, I spent like f- almost four years in, um, intense special forces group. And basically my specialty kind of changed from being Iraq, Afghanistan, or excuse me, Afghanistan and Iraq focused, um, you know, to countering, like going, going there in, I was in Iraq in 15 and 16, like during the whole ISIS taking over, I, you know, basically shutting those guys down mm-hmm. Iraq and Syria um to going to 10th group where i was and this is where like my mountaineering and like learning to ski and all this come into play now living in colorado where 
I basically was just thrown to the wolves. Like, yeah, you're not doing that anymore, bro. Like you're in charge of counter Russian aggression above the Arctic circle. <laughs> so I basically became this in four years span, became like an expert in Arctic warfare, went to like every school you can think of special operations has to include a Swedish ranger school to finish ranger school, um, training with the Finns and the, and the Norwegians and the Swedes. Um, and just had a really great, awesome experience. I mean, I, I don't have looking back on my 20 year career, you don't have anything to complain about. And mm-hmm. I walked away with a lot of, uh, a pretty, pretty big skill set, a, a lot of experiences from combat experiences to, you know, semi-permissive environments to, you know, the whole, um, seeing what, um, the big picture is with Russia and China and, and some of those things that we're dealing with in, in the Arctic specifically in, in my area, but um, just an awesome career, man. So yeah, that's why I think that like now it's so important for me to, to try to just share that with guys and that may be in a bad headspace, you know? Well, you have so. like a completely different perspective too than a lot of people who served like, you know, a 20 year career is a long time, but people do get pinholed. Like they get stuck in one place Mm -hmm. and yeah, they may bounce around to different units and things like that. But, um, for the most part, I'd say probably a high percentage people keep their same job for the most part, same MOS. Um, they just progress in that same MOS. So to see you like go from the guard to MP to, you know, special security to, uh, drill sergeant to, thinking you're going to first ranger battalion and then you think you're going to, uh, um, I think you said third ID or, or where did you say? Yeah, I was supposed to go to third ID as and then, sergeant. Yeah. And then SF and 10th group and then, uh, doing the Arctic. Like that's, that's incredible. Like just yeah. that whole, it, it'd be fun. I don't know if you've ever done this, but just have a plot map for yourself across the U S like all the different places oh, yeah. you've served. Because you've seen yeah, a, yeah. A, a high percentage of it, you know, in just different areas that you serve, so it's it's very cool. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and I think so. Yeah. What I'm really interested in hearing more about too is is you lightly touched on the medical marijuana. Obviously, uh, you run a business called Uncana. Is that did I pronounce it correctly? Uh, Uncana. I do not run that business. I I work with I work for Uncana. I'm actually the um, the national partnership manager, so I handle. Gotcha. All of the um, athletes, affiliates, and partners, whether that's foundations or, um, you know, just businesses in general. Um, and I wear, I kind of wear multiple hats at the business mm-hmm. at the same time, but but um, my main focus is just managing those partnerships and relationships. How did you get into that? Because I don't know if you were kind of learning about like the medicinal purposes of marijuana, like you said, to help your mom, um, is that mm-hmm. kind of what helped motivate that kickstart with like CBD and the whole how? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Uncana is a CBD company. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a soft veteran owned CBD company. Um, and basically the, the thing for me was, yes, my mother being native, but it was kind of weird. Like we never, we didn't take pills. My mom was like, people will say it's cruel or like whatever, but like if we got a cut or something, my mom would like rub cayenne pepper on it, like seal it up. And cleanse. Like it was like torture. So when I went to serious school, I was like, yeah, dude, my mom did way worse to me. Like, <laughs> uh, There's but, always uh, like crazy remedies out there. <laughs> but, um, so my mom being sick was from like, if you see like the commercials on like Camara or something and at the very end, it'll tell you like, 
all these side effects it does. I was like, may destroy your, basically, basically what it does is it destroys your immune system. My mom ultimately passed away from, um, having so many autoimmune disorders, everything from Guillain-Barre disease, which is like where your body just is like completely paralyzed to, um, lupus, just like every autoimmune disorder. Um, I really attribute that and I'm not a doctor, but to the drug she took, you know, trying to combat RA, her rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. Once we got her on CBD and marijuana, she did way better, but it was just so late in the game for her to have any, um, any benefits. It was mostly just like keeping her comfortable, trying to have her have like good fellowship and family time the last like couple of years that she was alive. Um, the other part of it for me was, um, I'm definitely a cannabis activist, but I'm also like, I look at it like CrossFit. It's like, I hate CrossFit, but I love CrossFit. Like there's a lot of good and bad to it. And I think cannabis is like the same way where if you use it properly, it can be, it can be a benefit. If you use it improperly, it cannot be. So for me, um, I didn't use, I didn't use anything until I started terminal leave. Um, and I started because right now even for all dod cbd is a controlled substance it's just like heroin yeah. to the dod mm-hmm. even the broad spectrum stuff that's tac free um and even full spectrum that's 0.3 percent tac doesn't it's not a hallucinogen it doesn't there's not enough to you you probably won't even fail your analysis mm-hmm. with that i mean you can but you probably won't even do that so for me um being retired and I'm basically a little over a year from my terminal leave. I started terminal leave in October. Uh, I am hundred percent disabled. Um, I have most of my issues are from frostbite and from trauma, from brain trauma. So I have a lot of significant TBIs. Um, so a lot of, you know, from blown, being blown up to hard landings on jumps to, you know, you name it. Mm-hmm. I've banged my head a bunch of times. I don't take any medications right now whatsoever. I don't, I was almost to the point my last year, I, I, I would have to commute. Um, we live about an hour away from Fort Carson and I was commuting and there was times where like, I just text my wife and be like, I, I'm not, I can't make it home. Like I would just get in my tr- in the back of my truck and, and go to sleep. Like the only thing that would help my head was if I just was just quiet and dark and mm-hmm. just, you know, my head just pounded so bad. Um, I struggled with like anger issues. Um, I had a culture shock when I went from third group to 10th group. I was around these just killers, man, just, just animals. And that's what I knew. Like if we argue, we're going to go out back. We're going to punch each other in the face a few times. We're going to drink beer and hug it out and it's over. I went to 10th group. That was a completely different environment. That was high school. Um, very junior high mentality. Everybody, talked about each other and ran their mouth with zero consequence. So I had a rough time, like mentally, like changing, trying to change my attitude Mm -hmm. that like, you can't solve everything by fighting people and whether that's wrong or right. And we talk about that later. But so for me, it was just like, I would, it was just bad. Like I, I was going down a hole, man. And, and I've seen guys, with the big pharma stuff and what the VA does and what the medical community 
does for you. They just give you pills, man, especially in special operations. Like here's Ambien, here's this to stay awake. Here's this to go to sleep. Here's this for like, they just, yep. you don't even have to ask. It's like, here's just bowls of it just sitting out. Literally I, like you, go I was mission, telling... you take, you take Adderall to be on mission. You come off mission, you take Ambien to go to sleep. Like, yep. and that's the culture mixed with alcohol. So I took all those things and looked at what happened with my mother I was like, you know what, man, I don't want to put this stuff in my body. Like if I'm taking these precautions to eat properly and not, you know, drink soda and all of these other things to be healthy, it's like, why would I be taking the BA prescribing like 22 different medications? Jeez. It's like, why would I take all this? Why would I take all this? Yep. So I started using the CBD and, um, and I use marijuana like a supplement, um, mm. or like a medication. Um, very rarely do I do like recreational marijuana. So, I mean, yeah, there's times I might go skiing or something and, and, and smoke a little bit or whatever, but 90, I would say more than that, you know, majority of the time I'm waiting till the kids go to bed. I really like edibles for the body high. It gives me to relax me to help me sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sleeping six to seven nights a week for the last like three years. I was in the army on the floor. Um, my wife was just like, I don't know what's going on with you. Like I was just a train wreck, man. Who the fuck um, are now you? <laughs> I'm, now I'm good. Like I'm, I'm so good. And I, and I, I think it's a difficult topic for some Americans because we look at alcohol, we're alcohol society. Like everyone's good with alcohol. There's no problem with it. It's like, I almost, I, Dan Crenshaw made a video and I wanted to like make a video respond to it, but I was like, I don't want to like shit on his Wheaties or try to act. People think I'm trying to be like Insta famous or something, but it's like, he really <laughs> criticized marijuana. And it's like, bro, I know you, you're a teen guy. Like you can't tell me you don't know your friends that take psilocybin and smoke marijuana. And they're a different person and they're an amazing human right now that can function in society because of these things. Yeah. So it, it was like, I think with America, it's just a weird thing where we went down this rabbit hole with alcohol and we're okay with it, but we're not okay with something that has like zero side effect if you're a certain age and you use it responsibly. Mm-hmm. Whereas alcohol, even if you're a certain age and you use it responsibly, it still has side effects yep. um, that are lasting. So that's where I... I like to share that with guys and I do have a lot of people reach out to me because I'm very open about it, but I'll tell them like, Hey man, you're too young. Like I'm 40 years old. I retired. I went through a crazy life in the military and now I use it to help me be a good dad and continue to chase adventures Mm -hmm. and to recover and to not use medication basically. Well, I've been, uh, go ahead. I was gonna say, I mean, that's, I've heard the message and it's so great to hear from somebody that's a, a fellow veteran, especially somebody who's, you know, got some similar injuries. Um, cause I've been like going back and forth whether or not to take CBD. Like I injured my ankle. I don't know if you can see that boot. Oh, oh yeah. He's yeah. got a whole broken foot um, over here. But I went to the VA and of course, you know, they just prescribed me Ranger candy, 600 milligram yep. <laughs> ibuprofen was like, all right, you'll be good. Um, I was, they actually were trying to give me heavier painkillers and I was like, I don't want anything mm-hmm. that's going to be like mind altering or I can't operate machinery or something like that. So All no, right. it's, uh, it, it's, it's great and reassuring to hear that. And, you know, I've been floating with the idea of taking some CBD. I just haven't done it yet. I think, yeah, I would say it's, it's life changing, man. I mean, I, 
and not even a sales pitch. And like I was using Uncana. I actually just started working for um, Uncana um, in November. So it's very recent job. Um, mm-hmm. And before that, I was just, you know, anybody I would talk to, it's like talk to my buddies or talk to people like, hey, dude, try Uncana and use this stuff. It's it's amazing. Um, so that's, you know, and, and it's hard not to sound like a sales pitch now that I work for the company. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, it's not a sponsored episode of Uncana. <laughs> maybe, maybe soon we'll see. But I, I'd be really curious about, um, you know, me being a civilian and trying that because obviously I recreationally like smoked weed when I was, you know, attempted to go to college before I dropped out in my early 20s. And I was seeing myself be very irresponsible with it. It was like an all day thing. And then mm-hmm. I would, uh, you know, and then I weaned off of it until I got into like, you know, my late 20s. And then I was taking edibles and, kind of enjoying that I was getting better sleep, but like I have epilepsy and I got it from concussions. Mm -hmm. Like I've had four concussions and I think Mm -hmm. one of my younger childhood ones uh, caused it and I developed epilepsy at the age of 10. And so I'm on medication daily, basically for the rest of my life that helps prevent seizures. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of proven studies that medical marijuana does help with epilepsy. So I'm kind of curious, you know, I don't want to wean off medication, but I'd be interested in almost trying it to see if there's some kind of benefit to the concussions and yeah, absolutely. That yeah. So, um, that's the cool thing about CBD that, um, people, you know, it's, it's not marijuana at all. It is a cannabinoid. It is a, um, but it's hemp. It does not do anything hallucinogen feel high, anything. If you use the, when we talk CBD, use like the good, better, best scale, the good would be CBD isolate. And that's what a lot of like Charlotte's web started. And some of the companies that when the, when the family basically moved to Colorado because their daughter had epilepsy, you know, she was very young, you know, mm-hmm. three or four years old, they were just using CBD isolate, which can target and, and help with the epilepsy and, and other issues. Um, if you have more significant injuries and like, I would say like veteran wise, um, you know, you need to go up from there. And then you have broad spectrum, which is better um, because it has more of uh, when we're extracting using taking the, all the oils and the cannabinoids out of the hemp plant mm-hmm. it's more vitamins more minerals in it but it still doesn't have the thc um then the best is full spectrum which has the 0.3 percent thc now because when we're when we're pulling all the oils out of the uh, out of the hemp basically it's it's um it's it's pure it's form it doesn't have has all the minerals has all the vitamins all the properties of it that tiny bit of THC that is in there does help a lot with pain, with sleep. Um, and it's basically the best one to use. But it, I know it's some people like if you're law enforcement or a firefighter, you have a job where you cannot use um, any THC products, definitely use the broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, it works great. My, my son, um, he's nine. He has autism. He's high function autism, but he's oh, wow. more social. Social. Um, he takes the broad spectrum every day and he's been doing it now for about six months. And, uh, I mean, it's changed his social interactions and his anxiety. Um, it's helped him out tremendously. So I think there's an application for it for everyone, you know, and, and if you're an athlete, like, and I always have to too, like some of the biggest benefits I get out of it as an athlete is, the anti-inflammatory properties and the recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the yo- even younger athletes, like we have a couple of like pro skiers and 
and uh, guys on our Uncana team that are, you know, they're wrecking their body. They're just, just getting after it. And um, it's not something like marijuana where you need to be older and your brain developed. And there's a lot of, there's a bigger talk when you talk, um, you know, uh, performance enhancements or medical, what marijuana does. That's a totally different subject because of age and what could be wrong with you. But with CBD, I mean, all ages, um, obviously not full spectrum for, you know, uh, adolescents or, yeah. or teenagers, but um but even just if you're feeling antsy, you know, use the full spectrum like that, 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 uh, I always call it like the fear, like the way I describe it sometimes like the fear, like you're going to get in trouble for mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you ever like, you're at work and you're like, shit, am I going to get like cussed out or like, <laughs> someone gonna be, like I think everyone kind of has that like anxiety at some point. And, um, you know, and some people have it socially, you know, social anxiety or whatever. And I take like a little bit of CBD and it's, it's crazy like how good it works. So. Again, not trying to, not a sales pitch. This is, you know, uh, something that I think that is, a ch- I would say like a link in the chain of me being in such a great headspace after a very rigorous career mm-hmm. um, that ties with nutrition, with sleep, with um you know, being active, working out, you know, the outdoors, like there's so many things that tie into that headspace yeah. and to make you a great, you know, a, a, a basically like a functioning person in society again. Um, so it's not CBD isn't the one, it's not the end all be all. You do need to implement other things in your life, but for you, for sure, for like epilepsy, there's a lot of studies and, and some really great things out there about CBD. I'd be curious, you know, if people are looking into getting into it, you know, like you said, it's still a very controversial topic um amongst you know i'll just say americans in our society a lot of people are for it now a lot more states are legalizing it Mm -hmm. but if people are generally on that spectrum that that teeter-totter where they're like i don't know it's taboo i don't want to try it i don't want to be judged but maybe i do want to try it for the benefits you know what's the best way that people can go into it because i imagine when you first start taking it it probably takes your body at least i would imagine two or three weeks to really start getting the benefit from it are we talking CBD or marijuana? CBD, yeah. So if people want to take okay, so C- just the natural yeah, so oils. CBD, CBD is legal, all 50 states, even full spectrum, 23% okay. THC. Um, it's, I would say, depending on the person and what you're looking for, like I said, if you if you have anxiety and you take full spectrum, you will feel, and especially if you don't use marijuana, if you, if you do not use marijuana and you don't have any and you, you don't know what that experience is like with the way it reduces anxiety and kind of that stress. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you know, took a dropper or took or a soft gel or one of, one of, one of the uh, full spectrum products, you will see an immediate difference in kind of mood and like, um, like I said, that anxiety, like that fear of in trouble or like things bothering you that will subside. You will see that immediately. Really? Um, okay. now as, now as far as like, um, the other benefits you get, like, uh, like the arthritis I have in my hands and like what's going on, like that is like a supplement. It does take, you know, a week or two to start seeing some improvements with sleep. Some people get it right away. I've, I've had, you know, people reach out to me and be like, dude, my sleep's amazing. It took me like by day two, I was sleeping like a baby with CBD. I have other people who, um, it may take, you know, two or three weeks yeah. and all of a sudden they're like, dang, my, my hand doesn't, my knee doesn't hurt as bad or whatever. Right. Like there's, it does take a little while to see some of those, some of those benefits. Um, 
the the way I I also tell people that are kind of skeptical or maybe like on the cusp, whether it's like a moral dilemma or whatever they're or it's thinking, religion or it's being a Christian or whatever the case may be. Yeah, like I mean, I can go into that. I can show you verses in the Bible about uh, Jesus and the prophets smoking marijuana, but that's a different uh, subject. <laughs> but, um, but um, I if you have a dog, buy the pet CBD, give it to your dog see what it does to your dog. And I guarantee you, you'll be like, wow, maybe I should try it. Maybe I should try a CBD. Um, does it just calm them down? It, kind of make it more responsive or mm-hmm, everything. I mean, it's, I've had people, you know, dogs with like arthritis or hip problems or just not moving around so well. I mean, it, it does so much for dogs, you know, calms them down. Um, they don't get, you know, like separation anxiety. Like I have two Catahoula leopards that are, um, they're two hunting dogs. Yeah. They're just psychopathic hunting dogs. If anybody's <laughs> ever had a working dog that works cattle and hunts, like that's what I have. And they're they crazy. They stay by your side. So if I don't, yeah, I can literally run them like 10 miles and like an hour later, they're freaking bouncing all over the walls again. <laughs> so it's like CBD has helped them with some of the separation anxiety when we leave the house or, um, the way they act when no one's home. And then, you know, also with like my older dog, um, if I run her for like six, seven miles, I'll give her like a little bit more. I'll give her two servings that day versus one. She's normal. Like it's, it's just crazy what it does for the dogs. So I always tell people like, if you're kind of, you know, don't know, you're apprehensive about it, try the pet CBD. And then, um, my favorite thing that we have is a salve. And it's like magic. Like it's just so, you know, you put it like you put it on muscles or knees or whatever. It's like an ointment um, almost. It's like an ointment. Okay. Yeah. And that doesn't have, it has THC in it. Um, has the, it's a full spectrum product, but it doesn't, you won't fail your analysis or anything on the topical, but it's a way where you're not ingesting it. You're not, you know, maybe you feel a little more, um, more free with that. If you're mm-hmm. not like a, if you're, I don't even know. I don't even know what it is. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's people, like, it's like drink sunscreen. Coke, people drink Coke and eat hamburgers, but they won't take a plant that like literally helps you be a better human. So it's <laughs> you know what I think it is, is I think it comes, um, I think it's, it's, it all comes from the church is what it comes from. Cause from my understanding of growing up as a Christian and still being a man of, mm-hmm. of faith is that I've always found it like taboo. Like, am I going to go to hell? Are people going to look at me funny for trying these substances that are so like out there and then they're going to think that I'm going to get into meth and heroin next. And I think that's where yeah. the hesitation <laughs> comes in is that most people are generally curious as they are, they're seeing their, you know, their governments legalize it. But I think mm-hmm. maybe I can respectively uh, speak on most fronts on the religious side of being Christian or Catholic that most people look at it as this just taboo thing that they might go to hell or they might be judged for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that like, as people, if you actually study more of like history on, um, natural substances, whether that's hallucinogens, you know, like psilocybin, uh, mushrooms, stuff like that, or, mm-hmm. or, or, uh, marijuana, there's a lot of religions that use it, that have used it. Christianity is the same. There's verses in the Bible about marijuana. Um, but the thing that I think most Americans don't understand, and this is kind of an American Christianity thing, this isn't really a um, like a worldwide Christian. Mm-hmm. Without getting into too much detail, if people study Billie Holiday, jazz music, what happened during Prohibition, marijuana was a racist thing. They basically, really? jazz musicians used 
smoke marijuana, use marijuana. Prohibition was going on. There was um, like basically elitist billionaires in New York City who knew alcohol was coming back. So they wanted to put a monopoly on the market. And what they did was they just made marijuana racist and was like, yeah, the black people do this. They're lazy. They don't do they don't do shit. They just play music, blah, blah. I went down this whole racist no pipeline kidding. with it. So that way when alcohol came back, they could have a monopoly over the whole system and not have to worry about marijuana being a product like tobacco is or the tobacco industry. So people actually look into that. And that's where most of this Christianity crazy stuff came from. It came from racist um, ideology in the 1920s. And if you just Read Billie Holiday, read anything about Billie Holiday or her life story. Yeah. It will explain everything to you about marijuana and why our country is the way they are about cannabis. So, wow. so I imagine that you're not even an avid drinker. I imagine you just use CBD and THC products much more than you consume alcohol because I can imagine it's, it's way better for you. Yeah. I, I mean, I. so how do I explain this? Not sound, this couple, there's another analogy I like to tell people. Um, if you train a dog you get a dog and you train it to kill other dogs and that's all it's ever known all its life is it fights dogs it goes in the ring it fights dogs and kills dogs now all of a sudden one day you're like all right man you're not fighting anymore you're just a dog you cannot take him to the dog park he will kill every dog at the dog park so when you take that same analogy and take soldiers it's like hey let's take this 18 year old kid let's send him to war and i'm not talking about there's a different generation of veterans right now because we haven't seen this generation of veterans since Vietnam. Mm -hmm. They're hitters, man. Their dudes are, they know war and they're good at it. And that's every kid. I'm not talking about the guys from Ranger Battalion or the guys from third group. I'm talking about your infantry kid from fourth ID. Yeah. Like he's good at it. He knows what he's doing. If he's, I'm talking your average squalor that's been in, you know, 10, 12 years. And then all of a sudden he gets out of the military. Now what? And society is just like, yeah, be normal, bro. And he's like, what? Like he, his perspective on life is different. Mm -hmm. um, you're in a, you're in a third world country. So when people are complaining about, like you said, your overcooked steak, you're just like, you're, you're mind blown. You're like, are, are you kidding me? You don't know how to fit in. You don't know how to react. Yeah. So taking what you just said, and the reason why I want to say that analogy first is because that's just what I think with, um, with society in general, when it talks about, you know, different, uh, subjects and, and shit. And now I'm lost. I got so much, sometimes I'll like, <laughs> I am a little messed up in the head. Um, but okay. Now back on track. So I have an addictive personality and I think that every single dude who did what I did as a profession has an addictive personality. Yeah. There's a reason why, and, and you can look at guys in special operations. Um, I read a study that it was like, it was, it was overwhelming. It was like, it was like 90 is in the 90 percentile of all special operations guys are on the spectrum. So the psych tests that they give you in selections, everyone's on the spectrum. So you have some kind of spectrum disorder and it's why, and I'm sure Dan knows it. It's like, how many dudes do you know that can just like, they play the guitar and they're just like, it's like Jimi Hendrix. Like, dude, how did you do that? He's like, oh, I just been in my room last year yep. or like shooting a bow or shooting guns yeah. or whwhatever they get into, they just become savants mm -hmm. and guys have addictive personalities. We feed off of that addiction. Me being native, it's also huge in native culture. Like all my uncles and everyone are alcoholics. And yeah. 
So I try my hardest to understand I have that in my, just my traits in general. Mm -hmm. So with alcohol, I don't like to go down that path. Now I do get crazy and we'll drink and have a blast and I think it's fun, but I usually just don't keep alcohol in my house. Like yeah. I have like whiskey and stuff and I drink, I was, you know, sip on a little whiskey tonight, but, um, you know, I would say maybe once a week, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, around the holidays, a little more, the healthy um, amount. but I really try to stay away from it because I feel like I could flip a switch very easily because I do understand my personality traits. Um, and, and guys around me as well, you know, and how easy it is to just flip that switch and go back into that yeah. um, mentality. I absolutely have that. I like probably admitting this, you know, on, on the podcast is like, if I have like two beers, I have a drive to have six or eight. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like I feel just yeah. a little bit calmer. I feel a little bit better, but then I just, I want to have more. Luckily I, I do know that that's processing in my brain and 99% of the time I'm like, no, no, no. Two was good. You're fine. You don't need any more. Yeah. But like yeah, in, in the back of my mind, I'm always like, no, 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 I want more. So yeah, I think that CBD yeah. or THC will be good for you. Yeah. Yeah. But and I, and I think it's hard in the military because we're such a, we're such an alcohol. The military is just an alcohol society. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, especially in special operations, it's, we have this thing where it's like, if you've never done something, and it's your first time doing it, you owe a case of beer. Yep. So it's like, or if you mess something up, like you're in the shoot house, you shoot something or you have a flyer or whatever. It's like, oh, case of beer. And like literally circle the flyers on your target or whatever. It's like, case of beer, yep. case of beer. Like, oh, it's your first time free falling above the outer circle, case of beer. Like, and it's just, it's just like that. And you go to balls, like everyone's drinking, yeah. like we're toasting and it's just so common. And it's strange to me that, that's acceptable to be an alcoholic and to literally push alcoholism and take all the pills you want. But then to be like, no, don't smoke that plant. Yeah. Like why? I'm not going to have a hangover. It's not destroying my liver. <laughs> like, you can I'm still wake me wake up, up and I'll run in the morning and run 20 miles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's not hurting anybody else either. Um, yeah. You know, it's, unless it's a, you're getting it's a into weird, it. I think it's still a weird, I don't know. I don't know why I, I think, the special operations community as a whole has done a great job as much as I just kind of knocked some of the guys for LARPing and running around and kit when they're not even in the army anymore, going to seven 11, you know, and their, their rifle and all their gear. There's just enough to be said about guys like myself that are willing to say, Hey man, I had a problem so I went through whether it's a you know a, a foundation or whatever. I went to Costa Rica and I did psilocybin um, mm-hmm. therapy. Or now I use marijuana. This is the type of marijuana I use. This is how I use it. Being more open, and I think that's going to help society because special operations is we're we're leaders in a lot of things in innovation. There's a lot of companies. Almost every veteran-owned company out there. Just you know, not saying almost everyone, but a lot of better known companies are special operations guys. And I, I think that there's enough yeah. to be, there's a lot to be said because that personality still shines through guys are chasing something. Um, and it's, it's hard to explain without, without sounding crazy or like a psychopath, like we are functioning psychopaths in society. And mm-hmm. if you find what drives you and how to make it positive, 
then it's good. If you can't, then you just crave that feeling of like, it's hard to explain like when all everything you see is green or white and you're just running and just killing dudes. Like it, it's a high and a level that like you are a warrior and you, you are death, you're dealing it and you love it. And it's hard for normal people to understand that. Yeah. But if you use that same focus in a positive manner, mm -hmm. I think that's why you see a lot of really successful special operations guys. Me and Tom were just talking, Tom Amenta is one of my uh, good friends who um, is helping us in a lot of ways in our company as well. Hopefully we'll have him on this podcast as well. But um, we were just talking about this yesterday is like, the best high that I wish I could recreate is, is like landing on the X, assaulting an objective, getting in a tick and coming out the other end, everybody unscathed and doing our job. And yeah. like, that is the yeah. greatest high you could have seriously. And I would give yeah. up all drugs and alcohol. If I knew I was a hundred percent safe doing that every time, that's the high I would have every time. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, there's a flip coin to that is like, not to get too much into this, but you know, you are ultimately there as almost an invading force, you know, and yes, there are a lot of other political things and like you're going into other people's houses and stuff like that. But just the high I'm, I'm saying of that oh, yeah. um, whole mission set is at a completely different level of anything, any other drug or anything you could have. Well, I think it's, yeah, I, I think it's part of our culture, like our DNA as human beings is to kill each other. And as dark as that sounds, I mean, we're hunters. So like for anybody that's ever hunted deer or turkey, like I've been on hunts, you know, mule deer up in uh, Colorado or in the high deserts of California and Arizona. And it's like the most adrenaline filled thing that I've ever experienced. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine you taking that to the next level where it's another human being. You know, you could think about since we've been a species and around on this planet, we've been killing other tribes, other nations, you know, and it's been kind of who we are. So I can imagine when you get that feeling like with hunting and you're stalking something and then you're actually standing over it, knowing that you did that kind of damage. I know it sounds dark, but I just think it's such a still a natural thing. Well, now we kill each other on social media and like call each other out and, you know, have rem yeah. no remorse or regrets for you know, what we say shit, to each though. other. A, a part of me is almost yeah. like, I don't know, man, you know, that's one thing about just like talking shit on social media. You shouldn't say like, well, you know, you should take it to the next level. But it's kind of like, I, I'm almost wondering if it would make people feel more at ease, just rather be like their life ending than having to have that constant, you know, ambush on their social media day in and day out. It's kind of like, and I can imagine that's why it's so hard for the younger generations, why suicide rates are so high, you know, especially mm -hmm. with, you know, other veterans. And like you said, I think when you're around this, group of guys that are so just full of angst and anger, seeing their loved ones, you know, being killed by other human beings and then coming back to this like almost quiet and unrelatable civilian life that you only knew as a kid. And as a teenager, mm -hmm. you're reprogrammed into becoming this new version of yourself. I can imagine it's really hard. And that's what I want to ask you about, because this is kind of an important segment that I always want to ask on this podcast is, you being a veteran, what do you think is the best way from you transitioning to civilian life for other civilians to help understand more on how they can help veterans or help see eye to eye? 
So, um, to kind of touch on some uh, a couple of those other things, and and answer your question. Um, there was a part of me that so my my life's open book. I made so many mistakes. Um, I have I have four kids. I have a 21-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 3-year-old. And you got busy. Next week. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was Airborne Ranger Life for Sex and Danger. I um, <laughs> And at the same time, you know, like I had a daughter when I was in high school. Um, and then a couple years later, you know, I have another relationship and it didn't work. And I think that um, – so for me, I had a lot of guilt – being a dad and not being there. Like I was deployed so much and just gone a lot that um, I kind of took that warrior spirit to another level. So like some of my buddies and I just had this talk with one of my really good buddies, you know, those at the house and, and um, there was a time when I was in third group, man, like I was the dude that everyone wanted to be with or not wanted to be with. Like, when we would do mission briefings and I was running main effort, like I know dudes would be like, I do not want to be on main effort with Jeremiah. But at the same time, when we're out. I would be that dude that was like, Oh, Jeremiah's maneuvering. Like I'm taking a squad of maneuvering. And, and dudes were like, and it, it made me feel good because guys knew that like, I was going to get it done. Like I was the, just like this madman that was just murderous. And in my mind, when I say the word murderous, I don't mean actually mean, you know, cold blooded murder like that. I, I, I'm using it as like a, uh, just your mindset. Uh, there's like, there's like, there's kind of like operator term or like special operations stuff. We say that I think normal people are like, what the heck? What the fuck um, are you listening but, to? <laughs> but, and this kind of ties into the how civilians, you know, kind of understand. But, um, I, I thought for, I don't know, seven years, eight years or so that the best way I could honor my family and my kids and to rationalize why I wasn't there for them was to die in combat. So I was fearless, recklessly fearless to the point where other guys, there was a couple of dudes that were always with me and loved to be with me. And there was other dudes who were like, yeah, that guy is fucking nuts. And yeah, he's awesome to have on my team. And I know because he's with me, like we're all going to survive because that dude will fucking kill everybody. And I would. And it was, I lived for it. And then, and then, um, grace of God, you know, like I had like kind of a, a cool break where I came back from a deployment from Afghanistan and I was training for Best Ranger. And I just wasn't on my team for like, four months I was just training for best ranger with my ranger buddy and I met my and uh and then I met my wife now my you know started dating her and didn't think anything of it you know and um everything happens for a reason it was it was a great break mm-hmm. I ended up you know tearing my uh tendon in my foot at best ranger and things didn't go the way I wanted to and I had a very humbling experience of like kind of bringing back to reality I think it was just kind of God's way of like telling me like hey man like I'm not going to kill you in combat. You're not dying the way you want in combat. Like you're not going out in a blaze of glory and like, you know, you're not, your kids aren't going to get, you know, you're not going to get the silver star and like kids aren't going to like have a dad. Like this is, you're a dad, bro. And, um, I changed my mindset a lot. Mm-hmm. It didn't change that. I wasn't just as aggressive and just as gnarly 
it changed in the fact that I like had something to live for versus had something to die for. Yeah. yeah. And I think that with, you know, like survivor's guilt and like different things, you know, that happened to these guys and, and veterans, civilians need to understand that. Like, like I said, the analogy of the pit bull is my, my favorite one to tell people it's sometimes I think I look back and it's like, one of my really good buddies died last year at a place I got in gunfights and, you know, seven, eight years ago. And it it's confusing. You're like, what are we doing? Why are we still in Afghanistan? Why are we still doing what we're doing? Guys are, have a lot to do with, you know, it's like you love cultures, you understand different cultures and especially in the special operations community, like, especially for green berets, like that's what we do. We fight with, the indigenous people of that country Mm -hmm. so that being said you respect culture so much but sometimes it's easy to look at yourself and be like am i the bad guy or am i the good guy Mm -hmm. and i think this war has been going on long enough where there's so many soldiers out there that look back on what happened and what they did and they're like they're struggling like they're just like dude i don't fucking know like why are we here why did my friends die why did i didn't die um and i think civilians need to understand that guys just aren't going to be right in the head, you know, like war changes you to a point that you'll never come back from. doesn't mean you're not a great human and you can't use that. And, and, but at the same time, I think that civilians we're so locked into the immediate right now and what we think actually affects us. Mm-hmm. And we never really think about like secondary and tertiary effects the way guys in the military do. Um, and we, the, and civilians also don't really understand hardships everyone thinks they travel and it's like, bro, you went to the EU. You like, you literally, <laughs> you went to France, like, cool. You travel, but that's not traveling. Oh yeah. Um, you know, or they're like, yeah, I did a mission trip to Honduras and I built a church and it's like, yeah, that's pretty cool in a way. But at the same time, like you weren't a place where death and destruction is just all you eat, sleep and breathe and see from those cultures or that country. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think it's hard to deal with. So I think civilians, if they could do a little more, um, be a little more understanding, be a little more patient with guys, yeah. try to understand why, um, you know, why do guys fly off the handle? Why do they have anger problems? Why do they have alcohol problems? Why do they have issues? What, what are they trying to cope with? And the biggest thing I always tell veterans, man, is like, get out and do hard shit, like train for a marathon. Go hike the Appalachian Trail. Or do do something that's hard, like to keep your mind and your body physically going, and to find your next adventure in life. Like just because you were in the military, whether that was two years or twenty years, like me, whether you had, whether you think your career wasn't glorious because you were a truck driver for three years, or you were in CAG and you retire as a, you know, twenty-five year sergeant major in CAG. When it's over, that's not the highlight of your life. Like, continue to do badass shit. Like, go try to break Mustangs. Go run, like I said, run ultra marathons. (laughs) Go hunt elk with a bow. Like, there's so many awesome things you can do and next chapters and adventures you can constantly chase. And that's really why I started social media was like, I was like, I just want to help dudes. Mm -hmm. Let me just show dudes there's adventures. Like, I'm not trying to be insta-famous. I'm like, I don't care about followers, but it's just like, if a couple dudes, like, pick up a bow and start elk hunting or, you know, start running ultra marathons or do something that changes their life. And I feel like 
just sharing that story of your next adventure and next chapter in life. And that goes back to what I was talking about leadership. Like no one cares what you did in the past, man. Like, cool. You're a green beret. What do you do now? You're just shitty dad. Cool. That's awesome. It's like, you you almost want to, I believe that you need to be challenging yourself every day of your life, no matter what your background is, no matter if you've been in military or civilian, that you can't live this one life. And I know it sounds so like stereotypical or cliche to say, you know, we're not promised tomorrow, but we're really not. And I think that goes back to what you're saying of what your mom taught you and raised you on is it's a good day to die. And it's almost like I look at it as no matter your experiences, that if you're coming back, even civilians need to understand that it's like, you got to get out there and you got to find hobbies. You got to find groups. You got to find these people to be talking to. And mm-hmm. I think I don't know, but I can imagine a lot of veterans get really suck like, or stuck, excuse me, in their own hole where they just sit at home and drink on the couch and watch football every Sunday. And that's all they do. And maybe they have an organization that throws a couple thousand dollars their way to buy a new truck or a new house. But what is that really doing for the individual? Yeah. So I think that more veterans and civilians need to come together and understand that this divide, it shouldn't be a divide. It should be almost that we're humans and we have a purpose to support each other. And a lot of businesses need to understand that every veteran is not just going to come back within a month and not fall off the handle. It may take them 10 years. It may take them six months. But I think it's kind of the mission that I know Dan and I are working on with our company is to talk to guys like you, get a better understanding from the inside out, especially me being a civilian, so that maybe people listening that are also civilians can understand how to you know, deal with these situations more and just support each other. Fuck, start up a new hobby, start up groups, hang out with each other. Yeah. yeah I I think what's to so like touch on this too. I think, I mean, if, if you haven't watched the social dilemma, like you need to watch it, but it's mm-hmm. like echo chambers are insane right now in our country. And yeah. I think it's very easy to be a veteran and immediately find yourself in an echo chamber that is just reinforcing bad habits and bad things and no one's talking. And this is both sides of the aisle, right, left, like whatever your beliefs are. And I just don't think that enough people really understand that, um, like, especially like on the, I would say like the more liberal leaning people, like Mm -hmm. conservatives, I feel like do a very good job of trying to understand veterans, support the veteran community. They're patriotic and they try, but they also reinforce some of those, echo chamber and beliefs that veterans have. But I actually think most veterans are um, way more, I would say if, if they actually like wrote it out on paper, they're probably like socially conservative to some point, but they're a lot of their viewpoints are very liberal because we've seen so many things in other countries that like we, we like, we love our planet. Like we don't want to destroy it. We yeah. want to be in the outdoors. We want to be, conservationists like we it's okay if you have this viewpoint on abortion or whatever it is and these social things like we're willing to accept that like we have i fought you know blood sweat and tears next to muslim men like i I think that that part is immediately removed from the veteran community by the like you know the more liberal leaning uh, uh society of civilians where they think veterans are just these all right, like, you know, um, like racist mm-hmm. dudes who went to war. And it's like, if you really talk to dudes, they really have a, a um, they're, they're, um, like they're what they think about life and how important life is to them. 
because of what they've seen, I think that more people would have way more in common with combat veterans than they actually think they would. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that conservatives do a great job of trying to do that. But I think on the other side of the aisle, not very many liberals really try to understand the veteran community. So I would just urge like, you know, if you consider yourself like kind of that left-leaning ideology person, like just talk to a veteran, man, like see what they think, mm-hmm. you know, they, they hate the trash in the forest more than you do. I promise you. Yeah. I, th- I think the biggest thing is to get rid of that, like unconscious bias that yeah. people have towards veterans is like, yeah, we were talking about it. It's just the, f- and I think on a different level on, in a lot of our social issues, this being a, a pretty major one, you know, that's close to home for us is um, just that fear of understanding that fear of like, actually having the conversation and trying to get to this level that you're at with us, you know, as a civilian trying to understand what we went through and connect it in a way where it's like, now you understand, yes, we may have situations where we're going to snap or we're going to like be like, call you out on your shit because when we were, you know, at our height in our profession, that's what we did to get better. Yeah. And other people are going to look at it and be like, oh man, this guy is about to go off the rails. Like he's about to blow up. We need to, you know, figure out some HR way to get rid of him or whatever. When Mm -hmm. you're just missing the opportunity to listen and learn from their experience and their failures Mm -hmm. to do better in business or in society and education, you know, at all different levels. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's like what you just touched on. I, I think that what's really cool, my my favorite thing about the military in general, uh, and seeing it as a drill sergeant, seeing it develop, is I'm not saying that there's not racial issues, and, and that's a definitely a different subject and I can talk about. I, I have my my both of my sons are mixed, they're they're half black. Um so but I I think that um people are misunderstood about America. If you're a white guy from Maine and you're a white guy from Cocoa Beach, Florida, just because you're two white dudes doesn't mean you have anything in common. No, doesn't yeah. mean you understand each other, you're the same culture, just because your skin color is the same. The coolest thing I thought about the military was, for me, was all walks of life, and that's from the same color of people, you know, two black guys, one from Alabama, one from New York City, they're not the same. Mm-hmm. The black guy from Alabama hunts and fishes. The guy from New York City doesn't even want to be outside in the dark, you know? Um, so I think the military is just so awesome to me because that's really America. It's all these different people from all walks of life just accomplishing one goal. And they're like, they're just like brothers through um, the crucible of war, which sucks. And it's it's hard. But I think society has a lot to learn from veterans being able to be, you know, a black guy from Brooklyn is best friends with a a cowboy kid from Texas, just because they both like call of duty and happen to be, they were forced to be roommates or whatever the case is. And I think that's so awesome that a lot of people, we just stay in these, you know, in our own echo chambers, you know, we just stay with what we know instead of in the military, almost just forced. It's just like, you're just boom. Here's a bunch of dudes from all walks of life. You guys all live together now. Be best friends, or I'll fuck you up. Yeah. And you're like, uh, Roger that. <laughs> you, you got. Know? You got to be uncomfortable. I, I think it's so cool. You get. You got to challenge yourself, and you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations because you'll never grow. And I think a lot of us just get stuck in our, you know, our ways that uh, are so easy and and um, 
comfortable for us. So I think that goes oh, in yeah. all walks of life, you know, military or not military. But um, I definitely want to wrap. I know you got family. We don't want to keep you all night. We've been at it for two hours and 20 minutes. But I want to, I want to. <laughs> I, I, I run my mouth a lot. So. No, oh, no, trust no. me. We can you've be got, out for four You've hours. got more than plenty to say. And I think that's why, you know, we decided to have this as our platform of sharing these stories and, and, you know, getting the full message. Because again, like I was saying is this is an easy, I guess we'll, we'll call it a safe environment, right? For us to share our stories, mm -hmm. share what we've been through. Uh, but when you get into that co corporate America and things like that, people are just so ready to snap on something you might say that you maybe said it wrong. Like you're just saying, you know, I, I was murdering on objective. Like that's not what you mean. You know, you understand that. <laughs> right. yeah. And so, um, no, this is uh, incredible. And I, I, you know, I could obviously talk to you for probably, I don't know, days. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I know that, um, obviously the book and, and the podcast and it's so awesome. And I just, anybody who, Anybody out there, you know, if they ever need to talk to anybody or want some help with something or I, I, people all the time are like, Hey, can I come on ride horse with you or do like, hit me up, man. If we can make something happen. Like I'm all about it. Um, I'm connected with a lot of veteran organizations out there that can help you go hunting or can help you get, get on horses or just anything, you know? So, um, I encourage you, I'm in such a great headspace. Hit me up. I've been through a lot. I can probably relate to a lot of issues that guys are having and and uh, and if you just need someone to talk to man like and reach out you know can you remind people of your instagram so if they want to reach out they can I'll follow you it. and dm I'll you i'll link but, it for them so yeah. if people are on the episode i'll link all your information so if they want to get in touch awesome. if they want to find out about what organizations are working or not working in your opinion and you know guys that you've uh talked to for evidence of that um obviously people can follow you on your channels but it's been great kind of yeah, awesome. understanding a little bit more inside your head. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to getting your story out in physical form in this book and, you know, sharing more of these stories. And I appreciate you being a part of this. Yeah. yeah. Can't thank, thank you, you guys enough. so much for the opportunity. Thank you, Jeremiah.